This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the show. This is a program where we give you the latest, greatest research information Just whatever we can find to help everybody figure out how to have a better life, Uh, whether it's, you know, poverty, which we will be talking about in hour number one of the show today, or leadership, you name it. We talk health, we talk uh, relationships, family, parenting. We give you some empty news, some news that doesn't even really matter to you. There's a new Spider-Man trailer. Like that, for example. Another another Spider-Man trailer, which is exactly what this world needs. The third Spider-Man trailer. The movie comes out soon. They're just kind of ramping up expectations. We've already had Spider-Man. Not the cool one. Oh, really? We've had the Spider-Man that the the Sony company has tried to uh, destroy over and over and over again. And then the other Spider-Man that the Sony company continued to destroy over and over. Right. That's a lot of Spider-Mans. And now Marvel has taken their product. Okay. Their, their baby, Spider-Man, and they're presenting him in his truest form. Okay. Okay. And his suit is, like, made by Iron Man, so what are you going to do? Oh, Tony, really? Tony Stark made his suit, so he's got all these toys. It's kind of fun. Oh, interesting. Boy, to think I'm missing all of this. You are. I got to get I gotta get on it. I'm just having too much fun watching Trump at the Vatican. What's he doing? Just is walking it, around the big halls. Is it awkward? It's kind of awkward. Is he looking at it like I could do this in my penthouse? He's probably, I did do he's this in my like, penthouse. Yeah, my my I have more gold in my penthouse. <laughs> he's like, this. this is really low rent. What's he doing here? This is the the Pope. What's he doing? It's really he's interesting. mismanaging his funds. Isn't it amazing, Donald Trump? Whatever you think about the guy, he he is the president of the United States, and is now sitting with the Pope. Yeah. Whatever you think about the guy, he won the race. He's outrunning the investigations and he's now meeting with the Pope. I mean, it's unbelievable. Donald Trump, you're fired. Same guy. Well, there's people that wake up every day. Same guy. They they look in the mirror and say this. Apparently the Pope is um, asking Trump to be a peacemaker. Mm. Like, let's try that. Right. Let's try peace. We haven't tried that ever. Let's try it. So he's he's been very busy. From being slapped by Melania in the hand mm-hmm. to the Arab meetings that the, were the, the glowing orb thing, the glowing orb. Not sure what that was. To the or, Western Wall, right. the first flight from Riyadh to Israel, right? And uh, now Rome. And as I as I read this morning, his schedule has been packed on purpose to keep him from you know tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> they keep <laughs> handing him food. So his hands are always busy. So here, here, don't look at your phone. Here, here you go. Try this. Try a Big Mac. He hasn't watched the morning news. That's good. Which is kind of see. This is a great model for him. If we just right. kept him abroad and kept moving him around, <laughs> just, he wouldn't get in trouble. Should he tweeting. just be on like constant trips? Yeah, his airplane never lands. But that's what you do with your kids, right? Like when in summer, you know, you got to keep your kids busy, or you know, someone's going to burn the house down. Right. Not a bad idea. See, that's why. That's why we do the show to give the ideas that. Others don't know they need. <laughs> we'll get to all that fun. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the poor, rethinking dependency, and the war on poverty. Some uh, interesting solutions, including 
the number one solution to ending poverty. How about jobs? Huh. That's a novel idea. It's a weird start, but get the people employed. Get them doing what they can do. Now, oh, I know, but they've got disabilities. Great, great, great. But disabled people work. Mm -hmm. And so get them jobs where disabled people can work. Get them jobs where mental health uh, can be covered. Get them jobs where family matters can be dealt with, where they might have, you know, child care. Some of this feels like we're just trying to finish kind of the circle, like we're we're giving them support. We're giving them food and help that way, but we're not coming around and helping them get out of the need for all of those things. And the problem is we don't have jobs. So we keep trying to impact poverty by taking care of every other issue, every secondary, tertiary issue, except for the issue of a job. So our guest today is going to be talking about we need jobs. Uh, We'll get into that uh, fun topic, plus, of course, uh, headlines with Terry South in a bit. Jeff's out today. Cole's filling in for Jeffrey on the board. And um, what – oh, and then we're going to do a little empty news, of course, as we go through the day. So stick with us on that. Let's get to the headlines. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A California woman was arrested on Tuesday on federal charges of conspiring to procure and illegally export sensitive space communications technology to her native China. This according to the U.S. Justice Department. C. Chen, also known as Kathy Chen, 32, could face prison term of 150 years if convicted of all charges. They'll probably cut that down a bit. Wow. 150 years seems a bit extreme. <laughs> Just looking at the you know average human lifespan. 14-count uh, indictment returned by a grand jury in April. Specifically, the indictment alleges that she purchased and smuggled sensitive materials to China without obtaining required export licenses, including components commonly used in military communications, referred to as jammers. Jammers! Is she also accused of smuggling devices typically used in space communication applications? So high tech. She's in trouble. Out the the country. A team of researchers working to perfect 3D printing printed ovaries for infertile women have successfully tested their creation on mice. The mice whose real ovaries were surgically replaced with 3D printed uh, variety successfully uh, conceived, gave birth to healthy pups. Okay, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. So... You so somebody just says, "Hey, I'm going to print me up some ovaries." Yeah. Then they, I guess, just go to their Canon printer. Well, you know, meta, you have to have like medical, a, a medical situation printer. Let's be in a hospital, and then yeah. they print up some ovaries, and now they're proving that that you can actually do that with rats, with mice, mice, mice pups. So the lab created ovaries even triggered lactation. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah, so 3D printed organs have been made before. However, these new ovaries created by a team from Northwestern University are the first to be made with a 3D printed gelatin scaffolding. Perfecting wow. the scaffolding has proven difficult. The structure says it has to be durable enough to hold together through the implantation procedure and carry the eggs, but also porous enough to function. Yeah, so you yeah. got to release the eggs. Sturdy egg, right? yet porous. The it's got to then be implanted. The end goal is to create a bioprosthetic ovary that can be used by That's women great. rendered infertile by from diseases like cancer or their other medical treatments. Uh, human trials are likely years away. But I, I mean, mean think imagine about that. all of a sudden you could be curing infertility in some. Yeah. That's cool. My wife stopped it. She goes, I don't want mouse ovaries. No, no you'll have your ovaries. You're missing the point. But then but they'll, you'll get to design them. You'll have, like, designer ovaries. Yeah, maybe bejewel them up a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Sweet. Somebody, I thought the big news there was that baby mice are actually pups. Yeah, I, yeah, I the, the official? Official? I call okay. them pups. I'm not sure if that, that's what the article said. It kind of threw me for a loop. 
For nearly 10 years, O.J. Simpson has called Nevada's Lovelock Correctional Center home, the Reno Gazette Journal reports. In July, however, Simpson may get a present just as his 70th birthday rolls around. Depending on the results of a parole hearing, the State Department of Corrections has announced that uh, they'll take place that month. The hearing date will be scheduled in mid-June. It will be streamed live, so if you want to watch it. <laughs> on TV. I'm busy that Simpson day. Simpson has been serving a 9 to 33 year sentence at the prison since December wow. 2008 after being convicted of for kidnapping, armed robbery, among other charges after a 20, 2007 sports memorabilia hotel room heist. He broke, he got into someone's yeah. hotel room, held him captive, accused him of stealing his memorabilia or something, and then he got arrested and thrown in jail. So, in other words, he could be uh, possibly released from jail. And uh, there's a lot of movies he needs to watch. That's right. About himself. If Simpson is granted parole, he still will have to wait till October before he's a free man. Nevada's parole hearings usually come months before the release date. In the meantime, the uh, spokeswoman says officials will have to prepare for protests if Simpson is granted parole because they expect a big public outcry. Wow. Because people feel like he got away with murder. Literally. And now <laughs> yeah. th- this is how he's serving his time is because of this right. whole other sports memorabilia. But now thing. he's out. Not necessarily. He's what? in parole. He could have a parole hearing coming up here in uh, you know, the next few months. And but, then we could watch it live during the show. Mm, I'm good. Because you know court hearings are just riveting. But there was nothing more riveting than the Simpson trial. But this isn't the Simpson trial. This, this is be a, the Simpson retrial. This is a 70-year-old man walking in and... Apparently he's a model model prisoner. Really? Does what he's told. He's like in the mo- he's like he yeah. He models the yeah. the behaviors, the wardrobe. Here's my new jumpsuit. It's probably blue <laughs> or maybe orange. Striped. And finally an Oregon family got quite a scare on May twelfth when their three year old daughter got fussy around bedtime and had trouble standing. Lance and Amanda Lewis ended up taking Evelyn to uh, the ER panicked when the by the next morning she could barely even crawl or use her arms lance lewis tells cnn that he has a a history of a rare type of brain cancer typically found in kids and his symptoms and the symptoms were similar so our minds started going to that so the parents started thinking is it a brain tumor what's going on here they were relieved but also alarmed to discover the true cause of evelyn's temporary partial paralysis was a tick bite uh, this condition is called tick paralysis. It can be fatal. I'm glad we took her in when we did and that it, was some, it wasn't something worse. A doctor at the ER found a dog tick attached to Evelyn's head and removed it. Even though dog ticks don't cause Lyme disease, they can cause tick paralysis, which is a result of a toxin in the insect's saliva. Symptoms typically improve after the tick is removed. In Evelyn's case, she was fine by the next day. That is scary. I have people that I know that have been bit by a tick, bitten, hmm. who done bitten, bit by a tick. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, it, it took him out for six months. Mm-hmm. Like they thought they thought they had like multiple sclerosis. They had all of these other things. Lyme's disease that ended up being and destructive. Yeah. Ticks. So three year old little girl. This is why like, you wow. shouldn't camp. No, I don't you think shouldn't. that's the case. Just, you know, maybe take some precautions. If God wanted people camping, he wouldn't have made ticks. He wouldn't have made ticks. Hmm. And he wouldn't have made these incredible trailers and camping units. <laughs> I do agree with that. Yeah. I, I do believe a mattress was created for a reason. There was guidance, there was there was, you know, inspiration from on high. Yeah. Sleeping on a rock is not what you're supposed to do with your life. No. You're not. Uh, and every time I camp, there's a rock. 
Even when I sort of like, you know, check the land, the ground out, make sure there's no... There's a rock. There's a rock well, right in the or, center of my back. Or like a slant, like you're on a little tiny hill that you didn't recognize when you were putting yeah. your bed down, and then you wake up in the corner of your tent on top of your <laughs> child, smothering, smothering your son. Co-sleeping. Ah, it's a good time. Uh, plus, the other thing is all the vermin, all the, the crazy animals out there. A wayward, did you hear about the wayward raccoon is now to blame for a power outage that left thousands of Central Florida residents in the dark. Aren't we, aren't we kind of prejudging the raccoon by calling him wayward? No. Oh. He's masked. Well, he's a raccoon. We know he has a mask. And he has those little hands. Okay. And he's got those shifty eyes. Yeah. Way shifty. The, in the Kissimmee, the Kissimmee Utility Air Authority reports that the raccoon climbed onto a 13,200-volt piece of equipment mm. at the utility's airport substation around uh, midnight on Tuesday, causing three primary feeder lines to fail. The substation, one of 10 serving Kissimmee, the Kissimmee area. Um, Kissimmee. Is it Kissimmee? I do believe so. Kissimmee uh, area. Is located, uh, anyway, off of Hoagland Boulevard, if you know where that is. Here's the deal, though. 70,000 customers oh, wow. lost power. I saw something over the weekend that there was a large power outage. And you won't believe this. Sadly, the raccoon did not survive. No way. Yeah. Fricasseed? Yeah, fricasseed. <laughs> Apparently, 13,200 volts of electricity, too much for it. I worked at a radio station. We were on the air just going live, no problem, and the uh, transmitter went out. Uh-oh. Now, you don't know in the studio. You don't know that, why it went out. But someone came in to me and go, do you guys realize you're not broadcasting? And I look around at some of the monitoring equipment, and I'm like, oh, wait, I guess we're down. And I didn't tell the hosts. They kept talking well, yeah, for you like never an hour and a half. But the uh, engineer went out to the site, and there was like a mallard duck that had crawled into the, the shed where yeah. the power system was. And it bit, the for whatever reason, bit the power line, and there was a fried duck. Mm, <laughs> so I, love I was duck. like, wow, what does that smell like? And he goes, you don't want to know. It's one thing to actually prepare and cook a, a meal. It's another thing to have feathers and all the <laughs> darn it extra parts of a duck. So it's, yeah, the duck went in and this got got himself into a, a situation and knocked the radio station off. The why air. did you let the host keep talking? What was I, if I told them otherwise, they'd get mad and just sit around and stew. So I just let them keep the show going. Well, I know, but I would be I would be so mad at you. Well, they flipped it over to a backup transmitter. Oh, okay. So I mean, within like. 15 minutes, we were back live, but okay, I yeah. just, they, they were just talking, so I just let him go. I know Jeffrey. I'm sure there's times where he just turns off your mic and no, doesn't totally. tell you. That's why he's not yeah. here today. He's... Hosts need to be coddled at sometimes. Yeah, but... I'm not big on coddling, so I just kind of mm-hmm. let him sit in the Yo, room. You let us just keep working, yeah. even though it's it's not even going anywhere. <sighs> don't, don't focus on the small stuff. Yeah, that seems like a big thing to me. <laughs> Seems like it. now I've got to watch the board to make sure. Are we going? Are we really live now? Are we live? Ah, okay. So uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're talking about uh, Poor No More. It's a book out, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. Really, you know, there's a million solutions to the issues of poverty, right? But really, it seems like there's one solution that might do the most good, and that's jobs. Stick with us. We're talking poverty up next. Welcome back, everybody. You know, in the 1960s, America set out to end poverty 
All the initiatives on the war against poverty have since failed, except one, the welfare reform in 1996. What made this reform different from all of the others? Here to speak with us today is Peter uh, uh, Cove. He's the author of Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty and the founder of American Works. The name of his book is Poor No More, uh, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. And Peter, we're, we're grateful to have you here. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. This is such a an interesting topic to me because so since the 60s, we've had a war against poverty, but it it, it hasn't done much. It doesn't seem like. And um, as the more of your information and, and your book that I read, I, I realize we may be, you know, barking up the wrong tree. Well, as I say, in the war on poverty, poverty won. Yeah, uh, and 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 I recognized this uh, late in my career. I mean, I've been involved since 1965, working when the po- when the when the uh, program that Lyndon Johnson proposed was uh, established by Congress to uh, to basically alleviate all poverty in the United States, and we really believed that was going to happen. And I realized late in my career that um, not only had it not happened, but that we had uh, not moved the needle at all. And in 1965, uh, the poverty rate was about 15.5%. When I started writing my book, Poor No More, uh, it was about 15.1%. Uh, but we had spent over $22 trillion, not billion, $22 trillion. Wow. And I said to, I said to myself, wait, there's something really wrong with this picture. It was kind of a mea culpa moment for me because I had been involved. And I, you know, I ran programs, I evaluated them, uh, and, and, and I designed them, and some of them did work. But overall, uh, the, the programs we established uh, at the beginning uh, uh, of the war on poverty in 65 just didn't work and spent 22, more than $22 trillion. Mm. So that got me to write this book. Is it because we've—it it doesn't mean— we didn't create a lot of great ideas, right? I mean, there was a lot of good we were trying to do, you know, um, taking care of daycare, taking care of, uh, you know, different methods of um, mental health and other things, housing. But none of those really seem to answer what you call basically the number one issue, which is jobs. Poor, uh, the impoverished need work. Exactly, and that's what the um, what the, as you indicated the, at the beginning of this uh, this show, the the welfare reform of '96, which we were very much a part of, um, uh, my company America Works, and uh, my wife uh, Dr. Lee Bowes, who's the CEO now of the company, we worked with the White House to say, listen, education and training doesn't work well as a first strike in trying to w- reduce the welfare rules because we've tried that and and it doesn't work. What works is moving people into jobs and then using hmm. the education and training to move them up. Um, and I used to argue with Senator Monahan about this because he would just say, no, no, education and training, that's important. You've got to give them these so they get great jobs. And we would, we'd say, no, it doesn't work. And, you know, we weren't coming as he was from an academic perspective. He was a, had been a professor. He was a uh, Ph.D. Uh, but I'm not sure how much he dealt with poor people. Right. We dealt every day, every day with poor people. And what we knew is, number one, they wanted to work. Number two, they could work. And number three was the best way to move them from dependency to independence. And one day I walked into his office, and his chief of staff 
uh, said, well, Cove, you were right. And I'm like, what? I didn't even know what he was talking about. <laughs> he said, well, there's research that's come out that says work first works better than just putting people into a classroom. But we knew that from experience. And what happened with, uh, with, the, um, with welfare reforms in, uh, in uh, 96 was it changed from classroom education and training to work first. And you know what happened? Within 10 years, the welfare rules were reduced by 60% in the United States. Mm. They had been going up every decade. And within 10 years, and it wasn't a coincidence, they went down by 60%. It's because we got people working. Amazing. So is it has it been like the political pull? Because there is a difference between how like progressives look at it, like you're talking about versus the conservatives. It seems like the conservatives think nobody, you know, everybody that's on the welfare rolls, none of them want to work. Um, but the, the liberals might think they just can't work. There's there's all these difficult issues as to why they can't work. So has it is it just our politic has been off, and then we've been divisive in the politics, or what was it? Yeah, you put it very well. I often say that it's amazing that we got welfare reform just because of what you said. Uh, the Republicans didn't believe they wanted to work, and the and the Democrats didn't believe they could work. And so the fact we got work as the major part of welfare reform, to me, is still a miracle. Yeah. Uh, But but it is political. Yes, it is. Um, There's a there's a desire on the part. Well, let me put it this way. There are people on on the right and who are who are Republicans who really do believe that people want to work. I remember when Rudy Giuliani came to visit my company, America Works in New York, uh, before he became mayor about a year and a half, he went into a classroom with uh, welfare recipients. And he came out and he said, well, Peter, they really do want to work, don't they? It really surprised him. And if you ask Paul Ryan, he will tell you, I believe they want to work. And if you ask Peter Cove, he'll say, We've, America Works has placed over a million people in jobs around the United States, all over, all of them people who were very dependent on government uh, beforehand. These people want to work. It's the government that gets in the way, and we can talk about that at some point. Yeah. But uh, but yes, the, uh, I, the, there is there is a there is a political disincentive, and I can give you an anecdote if you want to hear. Yeah, one. please. Yeah. Uh, about twenty years ago, a woman who ran the uh, state committee that oversaw welfare in the, in New York came to visit our company, and she looked at our company in Manhattan, which uh, was well fit to work. And I said, "Well, what do you think of it?" She said, "I think it's the best well fit to work program I've ever seen." And I said, are you going to support it? She said, no. Uh. And I said, why? She said, because down the street from my campaign office, uh, there's a small little program that runs welfare to work. It, it, it is smaller than yours, Peter, and it's not as good. But on Election Day, they bring out the votes. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's true. What goes on. Yeah, that's what goes on. It's what I call the welfare industrial complex. It's interesting. All politics is local, right? So that's it. You got it. You got it. It is local. And and these politicians are giving out contracts to organizations, uh, even if and this woman was a liberal do gooder uh, and she came in to to really help poor people and and, and others. And And she she saw the good. She was more than willing to sell them out in order to get reelected. I mean, I guess that's the other side of this, right, is, I mean, we're not necessarily making decisions for the long haul and for the entire diverse country. We're making the decisions really precinct by precinct, barrio by barrio. And it's not 
I guess at some point it just doesn't it doesn't produce better long term answers. I mean, one of the things I love about a lot of the stuff I'm reading with your your organization is. I mean, for example, Trump comes out and now he wants to impose work requirements on food stamp users um, and, and it creates all this backlash, except one of the things that's amazing to me is if we could get everybody that's on the welfare rolls working, um, then go back, retool them, reteach them, retrain them, get them everything they need to be where they want to be. Um, do you sense that that's a real answer? And do you sense that Trump, uh, his idea of, you know, imposing work requirements on food stamp users, is that is that trying to get more to where you're going or is that a whole other issue? Well, first of all, first of all, it happens to be the law of the land. The 1996 uh, welfare reform says that if someone is on food stamps and is able bodied and there is a job, they should go to work. So wanting to do this is only imposing something that already is, hmm. was diluted. I mean, the, the Obama administration came into New York and told us that we could not place people who were on food stamps into jobs, even though we had been doing it for years and they wanted to go to work. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, that part of it is very political. It's very do good. There should be I mean, somehow work became a four letter yeah. word to the left. Right. Now, where did that happen? I'm sorry. How did that happen? Because, you know, it's 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 part of our country. This is how you make things happen. It's almost is it just enabling behavior? What is it? Yeah, there's, there's been a there's been a growing uh, support uh, from the left of dependency in this country. Uh, and I can t- tell you a lot about that when it comes to disability and SSDI. Uh we're putting people onto disability roles, using disability roles as, as welfare, as, as, as unemployment compensation. Um, now I'm not saying there aren't people who are disabled. Of course there are. But yeah. we, estim- we estimate at our company, we place people on, off the disability roles into, into jobs. We estimate 30 to 40 percent of the people on disability either can work from home or go to work. And, and yet there's no interest on the part of anyone there seems to put any work requirements into people who are on disability. Hmm. Uh, you could do it. You could do it humanely and fairly. Yeah, you don't have to be um, cold. No, not at all. You know, the problem with with uh, with politics in terms of how it gets uh, articulated, uh, and Arthur Brooks at the American Enterprise Institute has written about this, uh, people on the right uh, speak in terms of logic and figures and, and research and people on the left speak in terms of being kind and gentle and compassionate. That always wins the argument, regardless hmm. of what the facts are on the other side. It's true. I, even even as we talk about it, every time I say something like, yeah, we got to work, I, I would sometimes think in the back of my head, man, am I just being, you know, am I just being rude, like a, a misunderstanding all of their pain that the disabled might be suffering with? But as you're saying, 30 to 40 percent of the disabled can work and, and actually would probably feel better working. They want to. Right, and exactly. They want to work. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're not being rude. What you, you know, I, what I would say to anybody like that is when's the last time you talked to a poor person? Right. When's the last time you talked to a disabled person about work? You know, and, and and again, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm somebody that uh, when I get off this show, I'll be going to my office in Manhattan <laughs> and getting and jobs people, for people and getting good. And exactly. These are poor people coming in and we're getting them jobs. 
So I think I know what goes on. Right. Uh, the, politi- the politics is a whole other thing. One of the things that you are suggesting is a model where you ensure jobs for everyone who is able. And um, so how do you do that? Are there enough jobs? How would we ensure jobs for everybody on uh, these on the welfare records? Well, yes, my, that's my able. proposal in yeah, my proposal in my book uh, is simply this. Uh, and I say simply uh, to ex- execute it would not be so simple. But the, here's the proposal uh, that we get we get rid of all welfare programs except for people who mentally or physically really can't go to work. Hmm. So there'd be a safety net for those people. We get rid of all poverty programs because, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, we spent over $22 trillion and it hasn't worked. And we take all that money, and it's an awful lot of money, and we convert it into first creating jobs in the private sector. And if there were not enough, this answers your question, I hope, um, uh, in the public sector, like WPA and others, so that... Uh, if a, a young woman has a baby and comes to the government and says, I want money, we say no. But we got a job in daycare for you. Hmm. Isn't that what – I mean, that, that's what – There that you go. That's what that woman wants. That's what that woman wants, believe me. I mean, sure, there are some bums out there, and I have some friends who are bums. But basically, people want to work. My proposal takes existing money that's going to keep people home and puts them to work. Hmm. Love it. Let's take a break. Uh, We're speaking with Peter Cove from America Works, and he is walking us through um, how we can put America back to work, first and foremost, and by doing so, end poverty. Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. His book is Poor No More, and you can find out more information about the work they're doing at americaworks.com. The War on Poverty, folks, $22 trillion spent, and so far, poverty's winning. We will take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Peter Cove. Uh, he is the author of Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. And uh, Peter, um, if you go to his website, you can you can really connect into what they're doing on the ground level, americaworks.com, and uh, doing everything they can to get America back to work. So far, they have created more than one million jobs for welfare recipients through America Works and other private sector endeavors. And for 50 years, he has been on the forefront of mitigating poverty by promoting jobs as a solution to welfare dependency. Thank you again for being with us, Peter. My pleasure. Um, This... Again, it's it's almost like we you if you're telling poor people to work, um, it, you f- some would feel like, oh man, I'm just being I'm just being so insensitive. I don't seem to understand their plight. But what gives me hope about this, Peter, is you're on the front, you know, the front line of this. You're taking this on, and when you bring up statistics like twenty two trillion dollars spent on the war on poverty and poverty continues to win, we, we just seem to be missing it. Now, do you, what are the answers? So what would you, if you could sit down with a President Trump what, or uh, even with our Congress people, what would you be pushing for? Well, the first thing I would do is something that 
Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, uh, said to me when he came to visit our company in Milwaukee about seven, eight months ago, he said he was going to try to institute work requirements for all welfare programs, including, as you mentioned earlier, food stamps, Medicaid, etc. Uh, that would be the first thing, that we should have work requirements. That is something that uh, that uh, President Clinton uh, established, which was um, uh, a reciprocal responsibility. If you're receiving something from the government and you are able-bodied, you should be giving back. And the way to give back is to work. And I would be suggesting to anybody listening to this program that they should talk to their congressmen, they should talk, they should talk with Washington where they can, senators, and and follow um, Paul Ryan's lead on this issue, which is let's get people working. And this, you know, the people that tell you that it's a bad thing are paying the bill. Yeah, I, I don't know if it occurs to them that it's their taxes that are keeping people working at home. What I'm suggesting is taking again all the money we're spending on people keeping people at home and using it to create the job so that they can go earn a paycheck and pay taxes and feel good about themselves. It's so true. And you know, there's, there's something more about work. Um, in 19, I think it was 83 or 82, Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical. Uh, I'm Jewish, so you've got to understand, <laughs> I, I, I'm reading... <laughs> That's great. You're reading out of your, out of your yeah, area. Out of, yeah, out of, my comfort, out of my comfort zone. And... Uh, uh, he wrote an encyclical on uh, on on work and the importance of work. And I'm going to paraphrase a little. But what he said was that de- depriving a person of work deprives them of part of their spirituality. Hmm. And it and it's really true. Work gives you a sense of who you are, where you where you are in the cosmos, what is important. Uh, it, your children and your spouse. Uh, all uh, uh, respond to that positively. Uh, so it's not just money. Uh, it also has to do with human worth. Yeah. And I think we have, and again, when you have people who say, well, you're being very mean, and the idea that people should go to work, I mean, you can hit them with, well, you're paying the taxes and you're going to work. How do you feel about that? You can say also, it means something significant to have work. And that that's what we want for people in our country. Right. Well, and there's behind... Behind it is another paradigm, right? So if if I assume and everybody that's on disability can't work, then that then I'm actually demeaning your worth. I'm putting you down where you're saying 30 to 40 percent actually can and want to and can work from home if they needed to or want to work. Um, but I'm acting like and I'm creating situations and conditions where you don't have to work. That's demeaning to you. Like you're not worth even working. Yeah, I I really have seen over my more than 50 years working with uh, programs uh, that have tried to help uh, poor people that there's been this increasing uh, disincentive and and lack of incentive by the government to get people working. And you know, it, it, there's a there's a hue and cry that just that we have a very low work participation rate. It's gone down in this country. A lot of that has to do with our government's policies that allow people to become dependent and to stay dependent. And we have to look at that because, uh, again, some people will say, well, they're all lazy. Well, it just isn't true. Right. What's true, what, what's true is they're making some rational decisions based upon government policy. Mm-hmm. If you change the policy and say, well, we're gonna, here's, okay, what Cove just said, 
let's make and what and what Ryan said. Let's uh, let's have work requirements for all programs uh, that are welfare programs. Then you and, and the people being able-bodied. Then you change the dynamic significantly. Does the government, I mean, like you were saying, if you took everybody off of uh, welfare and, and eliminated a lot of benefits um, and instead put, every, put all that money into work projects, are, are, you su- are you suggesting that maybe we need kind of a civilian conservation corps? Do we need a New Deal type of mentality? Do we need to, to create, you know, more public works? Uh, yes, I, I don't know what number that's going to be, but as I suggest, first we uh, establish the jobs in the private sector, and America Works has done that uh, through a number of programs. And second, if there aren't enough jobs, that we create the WPA public service type jobs, uh, infrastructure jobs, that will absorb the people who just can't at that moment get into uh, the private uh, sector. Uh, and yes, I think we should have that. I think it's important, but I want to see first the the attempts be made to create those jobs in the uh, in the private sector. But you know, we just seem to have politicians uh, that are stuck on stupid. <laughs> I mean, they just don't they just don't want to, want to change from where they are. I, um, Saul Bellow, the, the the great novelist, once said, "A great deal of intelligence can be invested in ignorance when the need for illusion is deep." And that's what goes on. There's this deep need to believe something that really doesn't exist. People don't want to work. They can't work. All of that. Um, and, it, and it has to do with politics. It has to do with ideology. Um, We've got to change that in this country. What about um, – because I know you, you work in a lot of the bigger cities and the bigger states, uh, the more populated areas, but you're also in Wisconsin. What about like the Midwest in some of these smaller states where unemployment is also high and yet you know, they may not be having a big infrastructure deal or there may not be the jobs there? I guess that's one of the reasons why the private sector might be so important. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know uh, – Job creation is is an area that I don't know a lot about. It, 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 what I can say is this. In areas where the jobs don't exist, that is where I would suggest putting in public works types jobs so that people can go to work. Uh, but, but, yeah, I mean, if you've got a situation where, where unemployment is high and the jobs aren't there, then you need to find an alternative. And to me, the alternative is to set up the jobs for people to be able to go to work. And um, I, I hope we do that in this country, because I don't think people, again, want to sit home and, and, and just collect a check. Well, and and it seems like, too, we, we somehow need to get our politicians uh, doing more than trying to be reelected. I mean, it's almost like there, there's got to be some accountability for a result. Two, $22 trillion of limited results, um, it, it's, not a good, it's not a good report card. No, one thing that America Works has done to help change that equation is that we have got government in certain municipalities, including New York, to only pay organizations that are trying to put people into jobs for their performance, not paying them for their program or their process, so that uh, we only get paid at America Works if we place someone a job in a job and they stay in a job for mm. a period, three months, six months, or whatever. Before we made government do that, 
Uh, they just paid for the programs. If they didn't work, the, the joke in my business was, if the program doesn't work, double the funding. <laughs> and 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 this, what we've put into place, and in New York City, um, the present mayor uh, and and other and and our previous mayors have performance-based contracts that really do allow the government to pay for things that get delivered, not just for well-meaning and well-intentioned programs. And that does change the equation because then politicians can't just support organizations that are getting them the votes. Yeah, that's good. And then I guess, too, those that for the people that really can't work, we still have safety nets. We still have other devices and, and means. But uh, everyone else needs to get get in the game. Yeah. And I call for that in my proposals that that in, in, in the in I uh, budget for that so that there will be money for people who can't go to work because they physically or mentally can't go to work. But otherwise, I want to see people working. I do, too. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Peter. Keep up the great work there at AmericaWorks.com. And everybody go check out the book, Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. It's much more complicated, isn't it, than just, uh, you know, these people don't want to work and or they can't work. They do. The majority will and would. Um, they just need jobs, and we and we got to get them in the jobs as fast as we can. All the other solutions are wonderful if there's jobs. If there's no jobs, then um, we're just we're just pretending, aren't we? Just digging holes for no reason. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little coach's corner with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, again, we've, we've uh, had a couple uh, discussions over this last few days about poverty. And remember, yesterday we talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress. And stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the LDS Church, that, um, you know, is the, the sponsor really in the end of this show because of it, Brigham Young University, is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have... They they have your church leader will come, your religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty. The church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We have um, we we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it 
on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we, we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them. And we always think, well, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay. But again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma, but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that'll help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs, we've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't, they're just lazy. If you believe that, you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end um, some of these, these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. Crazy stuff, isn't it? Well, let's take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're helping do whatever we can to give you a leg up in life. Stick with us. We'll be back with more. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research, access to the experts uh, to help you live a healthier, happier life, to have a stronger family. Today, we will be talking about parenting and boundaries, really about decreasing anxiety in parenting. I mean, nobody is more anxious about their parenting style than uh, Terry South and, of course, Jeff Simpson. Jeff's not with us today. Cole is filling in for Jeffrey um, today, but and, and I'm pretty sure Cole doesn't have any kids. No, sir. So don't be anxious. You don't need to. Be I live anxious. a life of bliss. Yeah. No kids. Yeah, it'll happen. It'll happen. Someday. I, I don't. I don't feel like I have anxiety around parenting. No, yeah, you do. 
you do. How's that? Well, like your son's going to to go get lunch today, and yeah. you're like, you're probably thinking, I hope he doesn't choke. Yeah. I hope he doesn't. I hope I just he chooses hope the right milk. He never eats food at home. Yeah. So I just wonder how productive it will be when he <laughs> sits down to eat at school. Isn't that great? He's in kindergarten. This is the first is time, the kind of a moment. trial run yeah. of going to school lunch. You know what he's going to do is he's going to come home dying of thirst because he won't be able to get that little milk carton yeah. open. We were trying to find milk cartons like that. We can practice. Yeah, See if it's can, hard. I, I couldn't do it all the way up to my senior year, and I just yeah. forget it. That's why you've got such bad bones now. Right. Low in calcium. I would also like to just kind of say that I think I have entered a, uh, a new step, taken a big step in what? my personal development. What? started accepting people who are trying to friend me on Facebook. Yeah, I friended you. Yeah, and I accepted. Did you accept me? I did. Like that took, what, two and a half years? Yeah. Good job. There's still people, like my mother. I, she's not my friend. My brother, not friends with my brother. My brother, well, my brother and I don't want to be friends on Facebook. Why? Just don't really feel the need. If I need to, I just text my brother and we say, hey, what's up? Yeah, I know, but why not be friends too? Eh. <laughs> not a, it's not a huge priority. Well, I used to have about thirty people sitting in the queue waiting to waiting on me to, to accept them and confirm them as a friend, and I just well, wouldn't do the, it. The problem is, then everybody thinks you have no friends. Or yes, family. I started realizing that. Everyone's so, wondering, like, do you even have a mother? Like, and your you mother's like, a wonderful woman. Why do you have like twenty people that are your friends on Facebook? You're you're like a grown adult. You should know, you know, yeah. at least you know sideways some right. twenty people just yeah. just around you somewhere. Just your parole officer, right. just your their whole office. So I, I've decided to do that, and um, if posts arrive that I find annoying, I will uh, the little feature of unfollow, but stay friends. Wow, very useful. I don't even know how I found your name. Yeah. I made it, I made it as difficult as possible to find me. I yeah. mean, my picture's on it. You just but... popped up, and I think when I saw you, I'm like, oh, I know him. Yeah. I didn't. It didn't dawn on me that that was you. I thought it was some other well, Terry Well, I am smiling in the picture, which yeah. is odd. That's not – I don't normally see that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, good. Good to have you be my friend now. Yeah. Um, so much to get to. <laughs> We will we'll go there. Also, later in the show, Caitlin Thomas, I think it might be her last show ever with us. She keeps saying that. But we're going to talk about her favorite moments on the Matt Townsend show. Mm-hmm. She asked me to try to remember mine. Yeah. There's so many shows. There's so though. many shows. And every day is my favorite. That's the way I like to think just about it. Just because when the mic turns off, you just put it out of your mind. It's like it gone. It didn't happen. Like, did we just do that interview or didn't <laughs> we? So um, that's we'll get to Caitlin. Also... We'll be doing some empty news. I'm going to I'm going to tell you about how a man just grabbed a Home Depot apron mm. at Home Depot and then walked out with some air conditioners. I've watched so many TV shows and read so many books where people are like spies yeah. or in that sort of like we're we're trying to trick people sort of a job and the number one thing is just act like you belong and people don't yeah. pay attention to you. Nobody knows. Just walk in the door don't look around like you're confused. Just walk where you're – people Be just, confident. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, you must be new. Yeah, I'm the air conditioner guy. <laughs> and then he just carried but off But don't walk into the manager who knows everyone that works there and you're wearing a, right. an apron. So. We have a cleanup on aisle four. Uh, I'm in the air conditioning section, so I can't help. <laughs> Sorry about that. We'll get to all that fun. Plus, if you're looking for any free buildings, Italy's giving away 100 historic buildings. 
There's a catch, though. There's a big catch. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to pay for them and a huge lease. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. What's going on, Terry, around the rest of the country? A federal appeals court on Tuesday revived a Wikipedia lawsuit that challenges a U.S. National Security Agency program of mass online surveillance and claims the government unconstitutionally invades people's privacy rights. Oh, yeah. Uh, by a 3-0 three, uh, three vote, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, said the Wikimedia Foundation, which hosts the Wikipedia Online Encyclopedia, can pursue a challenge to the government's upstream surveillance program. The decision could make it easier for people to learn whether authorities have spied on them through the upstream program, which involves bulk searches of international communications within the Internet's backbone of cables, switches, routers, and uh-huh. this, this whole facility just a couple miles Apparently, here from the Apparently, though, President Obama got a little slap down because he, he did a lot of this. He did. Upstream's existence was revealed in a leak by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden in 2013. Uh, the Wikipedia publisher can also pursue its First Amendment claim that because it had self-censored some communications in response to the upstream surveillance, they can go ahead and follow through with this uh, legal action. Wow. So, kind of okay. fun. All right. Ohio police say a man who fell down a cliff and spent four days in a ravine was rescued after he crawled onto a nearby golf course despite having broken his legs, pelvis, and wrists, say the wow. side of the AP. A worker at the golf course in Elriah, Ohio, was doing routine maintenance when he stumbled upon 30-year-old Gerald uh, Muskowitz yeah. and called for help, uh, says local police. The man was suffering from hypothermia but when he was found. He uh, told officer he didn't have any clothes on, which they found kind <laughs> of odd. Uh, he said he, he stripped off his clothes after falling because they had gotten soaked in a river and the weather was getting chilly. Temperatures dipped into the 50s over that oh, weekend, wow. so kind of plausible. Um, but, I mean, I don't... I still think I'd rather be found dead yeah. freezing with my clothes on yeah, so than dead freezing said with my he, clothes he, on. He had, been, he had been talking to his wife, ex-wife while walking along a road above a cliff around 2 a.m. Friday morning and that she had agreed to meet him near the golf course at the bottom of the cliff. He lost his footing while making his way towards the golf course. Uh, the cliff is anywhere from 30 to 100 feet high, depending on where he fell. Wow. They think, you know, there might have been some alcohol involved. Yeah. But yeah, he crawls onto a golf course. <laughs> Four. Uh, there's always money in the banana stand, unless yeah. you're Amazon, of course, and then just give those suckers out for free, says the article here. The tech giant sell, uh, tells the Wall Street Journal it gave away about 8,000 bananas to employees and hungry passersby every weekday from two stands in its Seattle campus. The stands were the idea of CEO Jeff Bezos, who wanted to provide healthy snacks as a public service. Amazon decided on bananas because they don't need to be washed and come packaged in their own natural, compost-friendly wrappers. Since opening the first community <laughs> banana stand in 2015, the stands are staffed by bananists and overseen by banana bananagers, so like banana managers, but bananagers. <laughs> bananaists um, and bananagers. Yeah. Right. Amazon says it's given away 1.7 million bananas. But Amazon's disruption of the banana market has made it difficult to find the fruit at nearby stores and restaurants in the Seattle area. One cafe says it's selling far fewer bananas, suspecting customers are just going next door and getting a free one from Amazon. Yeah, that's... Because why not? Why wouldn't you? Well, come on, Amazon. I mean, people still need to sell bananas. All right. And finally, the machine operator in uh, San Logardo, Brazil, probably just hammered that one, suffered a horrific accident to his left hand when it was trapped in a machine used to make plastic tableware. 
So it makes plastic utensils, yeah, yeah. plates, and stuff. Oh, his hand got caught. The skin of the hand was torn off. The bones and tendons were exposed, according to TV reports. Ouch. Some doctors who looked at uh, this gentleman thought amputation was the only po- only possibility. But one doctor, an orthopedic and trauma- uh, traumatology traumatology doctor, Ooh, doctor? Yeah. okay, had another solution. Insert the damaged hand into the patient's belly to protect it from infections until skin graft operations could be done. This looks so strange. <laughs> it looks like he's got a pocket in his belly. That's how they describe it, yeah. And he's, his hand's in the pocket. So it says, in order to keep the wounded hand alive, we opened the abdomen, took off uh, the skin, and put it inside the cavity to protect it. Wow. The patient's hand must stay in the pocket for about 42 days to ensure it develops new tissue and tendon material, which is capable of receiving a re- uh, replanted skin graft. So they can't skin graft onto nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so they have, have to wait until some... something returns so they can kind of build off that foundation. So until then, his hand's like in a pocket kind of inside Tommy, of his stomach. Tommy, get your hand out of your belly. <laughs> it's in the stomach. The pictures of this online are... Uh, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. They show the... They have it all blurred out, yeah. but it's still pretty kind of shocking to see the hand and then. Do you want to see my hand? Do you want to see my dad's hand in his belly? Yeah, it's bad. So they're trying to save his hand. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. I mean, really think about that. Uh, what ten years ago? Just even ten years ago, hand gone. Yeah, lost. Now let's just tuck it in your belly. Then the hand this is taken out. Forty-two days later, doctors grafted skin from his left thigh on it, making it look like a boxing glove, basically. Yeah, right? and then they'll eventually, I guess, make fingers. He is adapted to it and is able to hold his phone and uh, put toothpaste on his toothbrush. Amazing. Hopefully, he's right-handed, not left-handed. Well, hopefully, he's a boxer. Hope. I mean, well, that would help. He's got the necessities. If so, you yeah. can hold a phone and get toothpaste. So they hope they have additional surgery to separate four four of his fingers into two separate sections, but he has to raise a substantial amount of money and his employer isn't helping. So it goes on from there. Come on. Come on. Fix my hand. The guy is a, a walking miracle. Yes. With his hand used to be tucked in his belly. He said he could feel it yeah. inside. He's moving his fingers around. So. See, not to get... Not to make the those that are easily, you know, uh-huh. grossed out, yeah. grossed out. But I've been uh, – because I'm having a gallbladder surgery. Yes. I, I like to be prepared. Mm. That's the Boy Scout in me. And I – so I've been watching surgeries. Yes. I've on been. gallbladder. I've seen you watch these surgeries. And I'm getting really good. Like I think I could probably do my own surgery. Really? Just right at home? Well, I mean I'd need to do it in the hospital. Oh, okay. I wouldn't want to do mine. But, but you, you I, I'd go be willing in. to do it on someone else. Oh, wow. Could you – seeing you don't have necessarily training per se, you've yeah. watched YouTube videos. Well, I've watched YouTube. Do you think you could go in and advise on such a surgery? Oh, for sure. Stand there and go, no, 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 yeah. over here. No, I am a doctor, A, and B, I've watched a lot of footage on YouTube. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I mean it used to just be that I would watch Dr. Pimple Popper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gross. And um, then I moved up more now, and it's fascinating, but there's just some great surgeries. I've seen a couple appendectomies. Mm -hmm. I've seen a gallbladder surgery like four times, different ones. Some are really good. My fear would be I might get a bad gallbladder, you know, one that's just falling apart, and then what do you do? Yeah. Because I I haven't seen one of those yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm willing to try it. If anybody out there is looking for a doctor, not a medical doctor, but somebody that has seen a lot of YouTube uh, surgeries to right. do their surgery, give me a call. Makes total sense. Makes sense? I fixed my plumbing mm-hmm. using YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so why not do my major surgeries no. over Today, I'm going to be cooking spinach. I'm not, I haven't cooked a lot of spinach in my life. Mm-hmm. 
I usually just have like on a salad or whatever. But right. uh, today I'm going to cook it, so I'll be YouTubing that as well. So by tomorrow I'll be a spinach cook expert. Uh, you you can't cook spinach and have it result in anything edible. So no, just you can't. So you know. no, 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 no. I've had cooked spinach before multiple times. Yeah, not edible. If you just put lemon on it, my wife tried to dress it up. No. <laughs> it still tastes like cooked spinach, which have is... you had it from Chef YouTube though? Yeah, because it sounds like mm. I'll bring I'll bring that's in where some it is. No, tomorrow. that's fine because then the smell will follow. And we don't need that either. That's true. You just, can do anything if you just watch do it the, on YouTube. The leafy like salad. Nah, I've, raw that's spinach. all I've been eating, and I'm really sick of it. It's not going to improve the situation by just turning it into a, <sighs> a green mess of of cooked spinach. Just, ugh. but just that that swallow of that spinach, and then you know. Hmm. You're strong to the finish. Yeah. Because you done eat your spinach. Uh-huh. It's true. It, it was, I mean, I've it seen was, it. I it was, saw that on television, It was on too. TV, so. Yep. What are you going to do? <laughs> strong to the finish because I eat me spinach. Yeah. Popeye. If you want if you want it to rhyme. No, that's how Popeye said it. I know, but you could say it correctly. No. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Okay, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Shauna Reynolds about parenting and boundaries, decreasing anxiety in your parenting. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, feel less anxious. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, you know, we live in a world that craves the immediate. We want it now and have very little patience with ourselves and others when things do not happen automatically. In fact, if a process takes time, it's often viewed as a waste of time. And many times this happens in our parenting as well. Parenting a child is a long-term process and a huge investment of time, energy, and money. And it isn't easy. There is no instruction manual that maybe fits perfectly your child. So uh, here to share a few tips with how we can take some of the anxiety out of our parenting is Shauna Reynolds. She's a behavioral specialist and a family therapist. You can find out more about her work at intentionalmindset.com. Shauna, thanks for being here. Thanks. It's uh, you know what's really fun is your daughter Carissa is our one of our producers. Yes, she's she is. awesome. Congrats. <laughs> she's fun. She's my oldest. She, is she your oldest? Uh huh. And your smartest, she tells us. <laughs> and the bossiest. And your favorite, of course. <laughs> so you have you have Carissa, our producer, and then four boys. I do. And it, the deal is, it's hard. Parenting's hard, right? Because. It's scary because we don't want to break them. We don't want to ruin these kids. Can you really – I mean if you really care, are we going to damage them? You know, that is a really good question and I think that is where we make our biggest mistakes is we parent when we're anxious or we're fear. I don't know about you. No, totally. But when – I think the biggest emotion is fear and it – it just swings us into that fight or flight mode, yeah. and we don't think clearly. No, and I think that children are pretty resilient. Yeah, and I think that a, that's what we're going to kind of talk about today is ways that we can decrease that anxiety 
because most of us have pretty good common sense if we can just chill enough yeah. to use that common sense. Tone down, relax. You're not going to break them. But we worry because now we have all this technology that right. is invading our families. We have, it seems like, fewer, uh, you know, less time with them. We have fewer activities with them. And you only have them so long. And by the time they're 12, 13, 14, and they have friends, they no longer want you. <laughs> right? You know, they do and they don't. They, they're so fun. Families are needed all the time. Sometimes they act like they don't need you, but they always need you. Yeah. In fact, Krista just came home this weekend, and she came in my room, and we sat on our bed, and we just talked. She's married on her own and has been on her own for a while. But, you know, sometimes you just need your parents. Yeah, sometimes you just need mom, don't you? Absolutely. And and so I guess that's one of the things that should allay some of the fears. You don't need so much anxiety because – they need you. There's a good history here. Mm-hmm. There's a good there, we've we've done a lot, right? We've right. we've we figured out a lot of things we can do. And so one of the things I want you to go through with this is you've put together three steps to minimize anxiety as a parent. Great. Okay, yes. So so where do we begin? You know, those three steps it was hard to kind of come up with some things that I wanted to talk with you about yeah. today because parenting covers so many areas. Oh, it's such a big issue, yeah. So I picked my three favorite ones. Good. And so my the ideas and concepts that I picked, the first one is setting goals and understanding them and evaluating them. Like, like goals with our kids or do we set these goals just as parents and then we kind of hand them to the kids? That I'm glad that you clarified that because – the point that I want to bring up today is setting your personal family goals. Yeah. Where do you want to go? What do you want when all is said and done? So if I was asking you this question, Matt, your kids are getting a little bit older. Mm-hmm. What do you want it to be like? What, yeah. You know, when all said and done and the, you've raised them, what do you want your kids to be like? Because you have to have the vision, right? And right. I mean, I'd want mine. I want my family. I want them all to be independent. I want them to uh, not need me but be but but know to come to me mm-hmm. right when they can and when they need to um, but I, w- I want them I want them confident I want them to know who they are I want them to I want them to be caring I want them to be giving and I want them to know their talents and be maximizing their talents and when did you start clarifying those things? Well, the minute we had our, the minute I found out we had a child coming on the way, <laughs> I'm like, oh, geez, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Talk right. about anxiety, right? Right. Because you're you're thinking, I don't know that I can do this. I I've never thought about how I was going to parent, and then all of a sudden the kid's coming. Right. So then you got to figure it out. <laughs> but the goals, I guess, that's a great place to begin because some some of our anxiety may simply be because we don't know what we want. And if you don't know what you want, you should be a little anxious. Well, see, and I think that that is the foundational start, is knowing what you want, where you want to go, because that becomes your baseline. Yeah. So, but it's not everything, but it's something that, it's your landmark. It's kind of your compass where when you start going off course, you look at your goals again and say, oh, all right, that's where I want to go. That's what I want to do. But the goals need to be specific. Yeah. And the thing that most people forget about is the evaluation part. Yeah, how are you going to know if you're achieving it? Right. And I think, don't you think a lot of anxiety comes when we're not evaluating our oh, goals? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, and I look at it too because there's a, remember, so like 90% of our brain, we're not even 
we're not even conscious of, right? right? And our thinking. So that brain's constantly working uh-huh. and it knows if we're achieving our goals or not. Right. It knows if we're on target. Right. It knows if we even have a goal. It knows if we're losing a child, if they're distancing. So all that data is in us. And so that, that, that's why I like anxiety in a way because it's telling us to pay attention. So we got to just figure out why is it I'm stressed and if I'm not measuring – then how on earth would I ever know if we're getting closer, Agreed. further away? So I think we're pretty good at setting goals, but we're horrible at checking back on them. Yeah. You know, that's where you think about it. Businesses, when I get called in, their main thing is setting goals. What is your end goal? What is your mission statement? Your objectives. How are you evaluating it? Show us your criteria. Right. Where are you going? Right. So if you think about one of the most important things we can do here is our families – why aren't we doing that? Mm. It's Again, too, there's something about – it's kind of like the whip of accountability that we don't like. We're afraid. <laughs> it's, too, it's like it, it hurts because we, yeah, we weren't even close to that goal. Right. Yeah, that's scary. I think that's really interesting when you said the whip accountability. A lot of people, when I talk to them about this, one of their concerns is, well, that's why I kind of tend to stay away from that because it will create more anxiety. But I've actually found the opposite yeah. of that. When – because when you're getting logical about something, you get rid of all those fears that just aren't real. Right. And you start looking, all right, we're we're improving right. a little at a time. And it forces you to see improvement, not just the negative, not that's not just the lack of improvement, but right. by by measuring you actually can see improvement, even a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, you have the data. And you've got to, you just need to know where you're going. So let me give you an example. One of the ones I've been thinking about a lot lately is sports. All right. So I think about my goals and my values. I want my children to Mm self-correct. It's a big one for me because I want them to have that skill set to be self-aware, to be respectful, play as a team, um, be proactive, all those wonderful, lovely things. So if I know those are my goals, when I put my kiddos in sports, that is how I'm going to parent them. So. Let's say you go to your son's basketball game. Yeah. And Matt, are you competitive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you see happening all the time when parents go to sports oh, events? Oh, they get involved. They take over. They scream. They, they do. shout. They're out of control. They're not self-correcting. Agreed. Yeah. And frankly, I've been there. <laughs> yeah. But if you keep in mind, what is your goal? What, if I'm putting my son in sports, what do I want him to get out of it? These are the things. I want him to be respectful, work hard, be proactive, and whatever else we sent. So it's kind of a it's a gauge. It kind of throws us back. So when we start getting out of control, we want to yell at the ref. We want to yell at the, our kiddos. Is that really getting us towards mm. where we where we want to go? No. So if your son – what's your oldest son's name? Uh, Jake. Jake comes in. And he sits down and he says, man, I didn't get to play in my game today. I sat on the bench the whole time. My coach is just a jerk. Yeah. And you're parenting towards your goals. What would you say? Boy, I'd say, well, what was our goal? Just go back, go reaffirm what was our goal and how, and then some evaluation against the goal. How did you do? So if I remember one of our goals was to get, well, does he know our goal? You know, and that's, thank Because I would make, I mean, I, I'd, I'd bring him into the goal, right? I'd say one of our goals is that you are self-correcting. 
And they, that's one thing I really encourage. As kids get older, they become part of that goal setting. Yeah. And it becomes their goal setting too. And so the, then it promotes that self-correction. Then you just have to ask a question about right. that. How did, Today seemed like a great chance for us to self-correct. I know I was trying to self-correct <laughs> on the sideline. How did you feel you did? I loved how you said – I know I was trying to self-correct on the sideline. It's so hard to apologize. No, it totally is. But that modeling that you just did is huge. Yeah. And then you're you're shooting back to that goal and you're modeling that goal. Can you have too many goals? I mean, I, I see a lot of people that have a lot of things they're trying to do. And really, I mean, it might be better to focus on one for a quarter. You know, that is a really – Really good question because I do think we have too many goals and t- and too many expectations all at once. I'm the worst at it. But I think that's where prioritizing comes in. And that's one thing that's really cool about a family unit and whoever you're parenting with, whether it's your spouse, your mom, somebody, you need that support system. And that's where you sit down, you prioritize and decide not even necessarily the the one that needs to be hit first, but the one you're actually willing to work on. Yeah, that's true, huh? And and the one that, especially the one with your older kids that that we're talking about together that they want to work on. Uh-huh. And then I think how powerful it would be if we came back to a family meeting and just had everyone talk about their goal that they're working on and what did you learn, Jake, in our game today and have them just reteach the family what they learned. I love it. Because that's really where they start self-correcting. Yeah. And that's where they start processing. And I believe that, that, to me, is one of the most important things a child can walk away with is a self-correcting mindset. I love that. Yeah. I I cannot tell you how many times starting out parenting, I was pretty cocky. I just graduated. Yeah. Um, had a degree. I'd been working at Missionary Training Center forever. So training, 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 yeah. organizational behavior, everything. And I thought, I am going to nail this. I'm yeah. going to be so good at it. And <laughs> Because you've read it all. But if you really understand the learning curve, you start with intellectual um, information. You bring it in, yeah, right? right? But you've got – it's like you read the driver's manual. And now you got to start yeah, driving that do it. car. You got to practice it. Uh huh. And that is the most humbling experience in the world. Totally. No, it totally is. <laughs> Shauna, let's take a break. Come hey. back and continue the journey. We're speaking with Shauna Reynolds. Uh, she is a behaviorist and a coach, and is walking us through how to eliminate some of the anxiety. First, we've been talking about goals, evaluating goals, having some accountability. We'll take a break, come back. We'll be talking boundaries up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking today about how to decrease anxiety in your parenting. And joining us is Shauna Reynolds. She is a a coach and a therapist. She's a behavioral specialist as well. You can find out more information at her website, intentionalmindset.com. Most importantly, she is the mother of one of our producers, Carissa Kitchen. 
<laughs> how cool is that? That is cool. I love how you said the most important thing. That really is the most important thing. And and Carissa's awesome. Um she by the time we're done with Carissa, she will um she'll be a therapist ready to just change the world. <laughs> she already knows quite a bit. I know. She's At least so she tells that. me she does. She really okay. does. So you were talking about we need to set one of the one of the ways to minimize anxiety is is really be strong about your goals and your mm-hmm. accountability. Understand your goals that you're trying to go for. Have some accountability to them so you can measure them. Mm-hmm. That way you actually have real-time data. I mean it's almost like driving blind, right? If, if, you're, right. if you're driving in your car blind, you would have anxiety. If you you're would. driving your family blind without goals and any method of knowing how you're doing, it creates anxiety. And it's constant. And yeah. I think – like I mentioned at the beginning, I think anxiety is one of the biggest emotions that shuts down parenting. Yeah, totally. And so that's kind of what I wanted to hit on it. So speaking about goals, I th- I pick goals because I think they're foundational for the rest of the parenting skills that we talk yeah. about. And the next one is setting boundaries. You know, boundaries a lot. You hear that term a lot in therapy. And some people don't, I mean, some people don't want boundaries, right? But Everybody needs boundaries. You know, that's really a good point because boundaries are tricky little devils. Yeah. Because when you think about boundaries, a lot of times when I meet with parents and I work with parents, they don't even understand what is necessarily a boundary. So I think the first thing to do is define it. Yeah, exactly. So when you're a parent, a boundary is the limits you set. And if you already know what your goals are. It's easier. Right. So it's the limits that you set and maintain to parent your child to your values and your goal system, right? It's, it's just – yeah. It's the, it's the fence around the, the family, right? It's, it's the – boundaries are good because – but I look at it too. It's just rules. It's, it's just what keeps us all in the ballpark. I, it does keep us in the ballpark. In fact, I use that as a really good example to explain a boundary. Um, my kiddos played a lot of soccer. So you think of what a boundary does in a soccer game. Yeah. What does it do? Well, I mean, imagine because you've seen it when when the boundaries aren't delineated well, the kids will just keep kicking the ball into the next <laughs> field. And the game will keep going. Right. But at some point, it's got to end and we got we to gotta keep it over here. And, and, and boundaries actually make the game more exciting because – you got to keep it in play, mm-hmm. and it makes it uh, it makes it so you know there's there's rules, there's order, and those rules are in order are really important in the development of a child. When I worked in the schools, I would say the hardest kiddos we had are the kiddos where the parents did not set boundaries well, and yeah. they were tough. Oh yeah, and their parents were tough. <laughs> That's it. Don't, don't you think sometimes that boundaries are the hardest? For parents, because we don't do – some of us don't do boundaries well. And if you don't do them well, then your kids don't have the security of knowing how the game's going to be played. Agreed. And that's why – there's kind of two steps that I say to boundaries. The first one is you have to prioritize your boundaries. And I say a one, two, or three. Just keep it simple. Your one boundary – those are the things that are immovable. Those are your most important boundaries. You draw the line in the sand, and we don't go across the sand. An example of that is you put your phone on the nightstand at 10. If it's not there, you don't get it the next day. That's right. Or um, I don't know. What's one that you've we, done? We don't have – we don't allow phones in the bedroom. Okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, and TVs in the bedroom. We don't have technology in the rooms. 
Those are always used in public places. Okay. So you, you know what your number one boundary is. Kids are. home at 11 o'clock on weekends. Okay. Nine o'clock school nights. Your, the second boundary is a little bit more flexible. Those are the ones that you give and take on. I kind of look at a good one to explain on that is curfew. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm willing to work with my kiddos if they say, oh, you know, it's prom night. Yeah, we we're doing this. Little, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We need a little more time. But if they're saying it every time, oh, I need a half an hour more, right. then I'll say no. Yep. Because it's a priority too. And kids, I guess the key to this is because sometimes parents want to be friends. Uh, but yes. The boundary. Kids need just like anybody. In order to make a game fun, you need to know the rules. Agreed. And they and people want to know their rules. We know that because kids are always claiming how unfair things are. And so if if everything's unfair, then boundaries would make it easier. Agreed. Right? <laughs> I love that word unfair because I always say to my kids, "Yeah, life isn't fair. life's not fair, is it, son? <laughs> and fair is like a six year old issue." Right, because oh, I thought it was a teenage one too. <laughs> do they? Do they? Do your teens go there? We. I have a rule in my house that if we can't solve it by talking, then let's just flip a coin. I love it. And the minute I'm reaching for a coin, they don't want that because they're going to lose <laughs> half the time. Yeah. That's so funny. And so then that goes to our third boundary, and that, those are the ones that you don't have to. It's great if it happens, but it's you don't have to be as consistent with those. Yeah. And what you know when I worked in the schools. One of the biggest problems I found with teachers, they set way too many boundaries yeah. and they don't prioritize them. Right. So what are they doing all day? They're policing. Yeah. Can you imagine the energy it would take to police? Uh, what are the classrooms up to? About 32 now? Yeah. 32 kiddos all day long. What would happen? Oh, you, it's exhausting. Yeah. Well, and then, then you give – that's one reason. Of it. So your first year you do too many boundaries uh-huh. and your fifth year you have no more boundaries. <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> I'm too tired because I know I'm going to chase everyone anyway. Right. So maybe a few boundaries, mm-hmm. but that but we're very rigid on that are very strict. Well, and that's why I say you kind of prioritize them one, yeah. two, three. Yeah. The the first ones you don't move on. They're not going anywhere. Right. We don't call each other names. We don't hit each other. Right. We don't. So if you had five really important boundaries, could you be consistent with those? Yeah. If you had fifty really important boundaries, could you be consistent with those? Harder, no. It's too hard. Yeah. And you wear yourself out. You become irritable. And again, where are you parenting? You're parenting up here instead of in your common sense. And don't you notice that every boundary doesn't like – like for example, we know we're not supposed to murder people. OK. <laughs> so that's a boundary that's been created. And a that's, law. That's and a one. That's a one. And that's a law <laughs> and a commandment. But most of us aren't on the verge of murdering somebody. Mm-hmm. So what I found with my kids, there are certain boundaries – that they specifically need. Agreed. That's kind of that's unique to their personality, their style, that might be more beneficial to them than some other boundary that they never even go near. You know, and that is why we have parents. I have so many parents come to me and they say, Tell me what to do or they say, Well that didn't work. Right. That's why I teach in principles because every child is so yeah. different. And I keep telling my kids, I don't parent you the same. I parent every one of you different. And then that's when they say – It's not fair. It's not fair. Right. But it's like you said. The boundaries you set with each child is very different. Right. You know, with, with one son, I don't need to set as many. With, other, with my other son, I need to set a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And this is what I keep telling them. You'll have less boundaries when you self-correct 
more. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, totally. Absolutely. Well, and boundaries usually are to keep people uh, from going out of bounds. Uh-huh. But some people need, and I don't know that I, I don't know that I'd call it a boundary, but uh, they might need rules or they might need other guidance for what they should do while they're in bounds. Does that make sense? So what yes. what should they be doing on the field? So you may have the kid that never would run out of bounds, mm-hmm. but they also won't run on the field. So you, they need rules to be doing stuff on the field. Or the child that's to be living, in the your, living in your basement at 50. Exactly. You know, yeah. that's exactly it. And um, I'll kind of go in the, into that a little later when we talk about parenting being a process. But absolutely, you know, you set boundaries to motivate and move mm-hmm. them along. And that's why... It's absolutely important for a parent to take a breath and parent in their best mind frame. So decrease that anxiety. Know know what your boundaries are. Prioritize them. Just take a breath. Yeah. And then you'll you'll you can use your common sense. That's great. So we we set our goals and our values and we have some method of following up on it. We set and hold boundaries. Those mm-hmm. three different types of boundaries. And then I guess the last point about managing, mitigating the anxiety in parenting is understand this growth process. Parenting isn't – it's not a one-time event. It's a marathon. There has to be adjustment. It's growth. That, that is probably my biggest takeaway. Um, have you ever read the book um, by Carol Dweck, yeah. Mindset? Yeah. I love it. It was a life changer for yeah. me as a parent. It was able, again, it was one of those self-correcting moments where things fall into place. And she talks a lot about how parenting is just, well, everything is a process. So I had to, one of my most favorite things to do, and I brought you this picture, is to go onto Pinterest. Now, you know what Pinterest is? Yeah. Okay. It makes me laugh. (laughs) But I don't usually go onto it to look at different ideas. My favorite part is to go onto it and look at the ones that are called Pinterest fails. Have you seen those? No, I I think I've seen them. They're just, yeah. So any fail, but a Pinterest fail is where it's supposed to look like a perfect whatever, and it doesn't. And I love it. And it is so (laughs) funny and humorous. And I, I think the biggest reason why it's so funny and humorous for people is that you realize, Oh, I've been there. I've done that. And so this is my favorite one. So it's a picture of a porcupine cake. And she's like, oh, I want to create this. And I know the readers can't see it, but there's little things poking out of it. Yeah. There's a mouth. It's this cute. I mean, it's an amazing cake that looks like a porcupine. <laughs> and then and you And then see, she made one, and it doesn't look at all like it's a cake. It is. But I, I, I have to tell you, it's my most favorite one because look at the mouth. Yeah. She wasn't able – so – Pin- <laughs> It's a pretty ugly porcupine. <laughs> it's so funny because on Pinterest, you're trying to recreate what somebody else has done. Yeah. And how many times have they done it? Most of the time when you've seen it, they're the masters of that skill. Right. And they've done it and done it and done it until they got it – until they were able to do it really well. And that's what you've seen. So then you're like, oh, yeah, I can, I I can, can do, do that. This. And then you try it and it looks like this. And that's I love that she can't – get around the mouth of the porcupine so she puts dentures in it <laughs> she just stuck somebody's teeth in there the sad thing is they're not going to be able to eat the cake now because their teeth are in the cake i know right <laughs> but i guess this is the point of parenting right we all want we all think there's this perfect idyllic way to do it and it's not the case you've got to find your own way of making the cake you and not only that you have got to know it's a process and i want to bring up a, some very important points on this 
when we think we live in such a fast-paced world, we want it now. We get things are automatic. We want to be able to figure out. We want this special portion pill to lose weight. Yeah. And when parents come to me and ask for ask for help, they want it tomorrow. They want that skill to be effective right, tomorrow. Right. Right. It's not the way life works. Doesn't happen that way. And one of my favorite sayings that when I especially work with women, I don't believe it's the problem with the expectation. I believe it's the time and the patience and the willingness to keep going and being resilient to master the skills that are necessary. Yeah. What have you noticed about that? Yeah, with raising your own kids. Oh, because really every kid is so different Mm -hmm. and um, tomorrow's another day. So it's I always look at it like, all right, so that didn't go so well. But tomorrow's another day. And interestingly, every day is so different. They all seem the same to us if you're not trying to see the difference. But we'll do it again tomorrow. Right. We'll try it again tomorrow. Uh, we'll do the phone thing again tomorrow. And again, I've noticed that with a strong boundary over time, they do start self-correcting. They do start with a weak boundary. It does seem like it never changes. I agree. And that's why boundaries are so important. And I spend a lot of time with working with parents on that. But I think this, when we don't look at parenting as a process, we get into this perfectionistic mode. I need to be perfect. I need to look perfect. I need to make sure my kids look perfect. And that is when I believe that's one of the biggest detriments we do to ourselves and to our children. Because what happens when we're not perfect, what do we do? Oh, then we give up or we push harder. Right. We give up. And I can't. that is one of the biggest patterns I see with parents. It's a shutdown mode. Yeah, you can't give up. No. This, I mean, this is forever. Right. But they do. They shut yeah, down. Totally. And then they pull away and they, they pull away emotionally from their kids. Yeah. Or they pretend everything's perfect and it's hidden and, and they just won't deal with problems. But you know what? That's how we learn. We learn. We make as many mistakes as we make good choices. And that self-evaluation and being able to look at it and say – and be self-aware. Yeah. Can you do it if your parent is constantly saying – No. And criticizing and expecting this perfect little person right now? When you parent – as a process, they see that life as a process. Mm-hmm. When you parent as a perfectionist, they see that life is something to perfect. And it, so then that induces my anxiety as a parent and your anxiety as a child. But process is we're here to learn. Learning process. Us, all that means is know what your values are, have your boundaries, and learn. And tomorrow's another day. We do it again tomorrow. And, and being able to chill enough to look at it and say, <laughs> and even laugh yeah. about no, it. Right. That, that was go. that was a good fail. That's right. You know? That's right. It's so I true. I put the dentures in the cake. You there's know? always one way. Yeah, there's some way around it. And tomorrow we'll try and, and do it again. Shauna, thanks for being here and your great work. Um, they can go to your website, intentionalmindset.com, right? Absolutely. I'd love to hear from them. Yeah. And you, they can write you questions. Absolutely. Get coaching from you as mm-hmm. well. Shauna Reynolds is her name. Go check out the website, intentionalmindset.com, and you'll see and hear more from her because uh, Carissa Kitchens is going to be around for a long time. Thank you so much, Shauna. We will take a break and uh, come back, do a little empty news when we come back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. (music) 
Welcome back, friends. You know, Caitlin Thomas, one of our great producers, has been with us here since March of 2015. She recently has graduated and is now looking for a full-time job. So today is our final segment with her, and so we are, we're going to talk about her favorite memories from the show, which is crazy because it doesn't seem like um, it's been that long. Am I that old? I guess you're that old. I must be that old. Caitlin, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. And thanks for all you've done over the many years. I mean, it's been fun. I, mean, I, actually... I saw you grow up from a young queen to a royal queen a... <laughs> of the city of Lehigh. <laughs> to a college grad. To now a college grad. Yeah. So I was just thinking yesterday about some of my favorite Matt moments. Oh, boy. This is my last segment. I okay. just wanted to... Talk about a few. Let's hear. Yeah. I mean, like the fact that I came in here two years ago, over two years ago, interviewing for a social media job. Yeah. And they apparently didn't want me for that. Well, yeah, one. you weren't very good so at that. So they felt, no, they we felt bad know. for me. And so they were just like, oh, go talk to Matt. Yeah. You, he, might, he might like you. I remember that. I remember <laughs> when I then, first met you. Yeah, I got ushered into your office and there, the rest is history. That was it. And you brought me <laughs> all that really good food and we're like, let's hire you. Right. That's totally what I do to every interview. That's so how good. you nail That's the job. How, you need to do that with these new jobs too. Yeah. Oh, just start feeding Take them? Take them some Is food. that the trick? Uh-huh. Okay. It works every time. That makes sense. Um, or my very first on-air segment with Matt, I did it together with Leanna. Oh, yeah. That and was And we were talking about radio accent or like – oh, no, just kidding. This one was Matt's versus millennials and getting advice from adults. Uh-huh. And uh, we actually have a clip of that oh, boy. one. If you want to listen to this beautiful thing that Matt told us. What do I tell my friend who has – horribly bad body odor every day and complains to me all the time that nobody asks her out on dates and it's not that she's not cute yes she just smells bad how do i tell her that that's a great question what you say is this is one thing you can do you just go "Ooh, what is that smell (laughs) that's how you do it you just ask that and then it's like whoa that somebody has b-o and then smell yourself. No, not it's you. not me. And then just walk away. <laughs> That's what you do. That's it's subtle. such great it's advice. It's kind of passive aggressive, but it's subtle. Oh my goodness, that was one of my favorite ones. That was a fun that one. was a good. That one. was a good memory. Yeah. Or how about the time, the very first time, I forgot to get a setup sheet ready. Oh yeah. For an interview, and I got a text at six a.m. from Terry that was like, "Um, where's your setup sheet?" And yeah, I was that like, was rude. I don't know. And I jumped out of bed, and I just was like in a flash trying to. Yeah. I made a setup sheet at my house, and I was like, wow, I'm going to get fired. But then I didn't. Oh, yeah. We, we, that was when we gave you your first demerit. Demerit. Yeah. So I got my first <laughs> demerit. But, and look, look at how, where it's got you since. Or what about the time where, again, with Leanna, we did a segment, and this is the one where we talk about radio voices. Yeah. And she legit called you a pedophile yeah, she did. on air, and so we had to cut it out. So I think we have, like, the little clip. Do we want to sh- listen to that? She because... doesn't say it. We're gonna, it's going to okay. have the cut. Okay. Are people like female voices that are lower frequency and that are breathier and and that they make the ooh sound like a goose? So now, Matt, we're going to have you try and okay. see if you might be better if you use a breathier. Okay. <laughs> my name is Matt. So there's Matt yeah, trying to my, have a breathy voice. That's for my you. breathy voice. Okay, can you do a good person? Okay. <laughs> can you do a female voice, though? Try and be a girl. Just, see, the problem is going high with me. I've lost my high register ever since the accident. But I'll try. Hi. I can't see because there's this, this middle you area know, I can't reach. Good morning, everybody. 
Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. And then that's where she... <laughs> and that's like, where I said, uh, so then we made this us. cut. We've got to go. Yeah. We've got a hard break. But, Caitlin, thanks. We love you. We love having you on the show. We're going to miss you. I'm going to miss it. But thanks for letting me uh, come chit-chat with you guys. Caitlin Thomas. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. If you missed the other two hours of the show, you can go to iTunes. You can go to TuneIn, Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. Go look it up at MattTownsend.com. Find us on Twitter, at Dr. Matt Show. Look up our Facebook page. We're everywhere. And then you can get uh, all of our segments and, and send them on to the people in your life that need them. Because I know you don't need the help. You are perfect. But, uh, boy, your family and friends, some of them are really messed up, aren't they? So on the show, we're going to be talking today about how come some people are really nice and some are just jerks. What is it about human behavior that, that makes you be nice to a complete stranger but mean to the people you love the most? Something's weird there. And so we'll be replaying an interview with Adam Bear and a great interview that uh, you're not going to want to miss. Plus, we'll be visiting with our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation uh, as we get closer to the top of the hour. They're going to be getting ready for their show They'll let us know what's coming up um, on on that show. Um, plus, we'll also do a hero of the day. And we got to get into our empty news. I teased it last hour, and I never got around to it. But you wear a Home Depot apron, you think you can take anything out of the store. Just walk away with it. Hmm. You know? You can't wear a Lowe's apron into a Home Depot and take anything out. But you can wear a Home Depot apron into a Home Depot and carry away air conditioners, apparently. So we'll get to that. Plus, Italy's giving away some buildings. If you're looking for a new building, hmm. you can go to Italy and pick one up. And a woman robbed a local restaurant with a hammer. But she didn't leave her best friend, the dog. She didn't leave the dog at home. She brought the dog with her. Well, she's a responsible pet owner. Yeah. That's it. If you're going to rob a store with a hammer, you may as well bring your pooch. That helps get through it. So we'll get to all of that fun stuff. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? The U.S. Department of Justice sued Fiat Chrysler on Tuesday for violating the Clean Air Act by using software in diesel vehicles that create uh, cheated emission tests. These defeat devices were installed in more than 100,000 Ram trucks and Jeep Grand Cherokee vehicles from 2014 through 2016. This results in cars that meet emission standards in the laboratory and during standard EPA testing. Oh. But uh, when you're running just normal use, it Dodge reverts. a little Volkswagen on us. Exactly. So they're getting, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to have to answer for that. And just to remind you, Volkswagen agreed to pay $17 billion in a civil settlement to the U.S. last year. Wow. And another $2.8 billion in a criminal fine. So we'll see where Fiat Chrysler ends up when the fines come down. Busted. A new study published in the Journal of Pediatrics found that ensuring children under 15 are properly restrained or wearing seatbelts at all could save about 232 lives a year. Researchers found 20% of children who died in fatal car crashes between 2010 and 2014 weren't buckled in mm. or were improperly restrained, this according to a report from NPR. Of the more than 18,000 children involved in fatal car crashes, 
in those years, 15% died. The biggest factor in those deaths were whether the children were restrained or not. It says more than half of the children who died in car crashes live in the South. The highest rates of death were in Mississippi, Wyoming, Alabama, Montana, and Virginia. The lowest were in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Washington, and Rhode Island. Wow. Come on. Buckle your kids in. California's iconic Pacific Coast Highway has been hit with unprecedented damage after a huge landslide buried part of the road in Big Sur in an estimated 1 million tons of rock and dirt. Authorities said Tuesday the landslide in Mud Creek was so severe it changed the coastline below Scenic Highway 1, burying a chunk of the highway under 40 feet of rock and dirt. Uh, Let's see, the the landslide adds to a damage from several smaller mudslides caused by one of the Golden State's wettest winters with an estimated $1 billion in damage to 400 sites along the highway. Yeah, but the neat thing is you just added new coastal areas. (laughs) You just added a million ton of dirt to the coast. You don't have to truck it in. You just took it off the side of the hill. And finally, perhaps Carl Webb was expecting to hear that he had had a broken taillight or that he had been speeding. Instead, the police officer who pulled him over on a Memphis interstate Thursday had uh, this to say. He goes, I'm not messing with you. There is a body on your trunk. (laughs) Turns out Webb had driven 14 miles away from a barbecue festival without realizing that a man had fallen asleep on the 14-inch wide trunk of his Ford Taurus. What? Webb says the officer had to wake up the alleged uh, drunk man to put him in his cruiser after he nearly stumbled into traffic. The guy was really out of it, laying on the back of this car. Well, but was the driver not a little drunk? To because no. How do you not Just see a guy unaware. on your trunk? Just unaware. Didn't look out his <laughs> rearview when. Can you imagine waking up on the back of guy, some guy's trunk lid? Whoa. Huh? Ugh. What is the deal? And then you see, I, I started thinking about it. Like most cars, the trunk may have a little bit of a yeah. roundness to it. And a, a Taurus, I think, is pretty flat. But so you, it might be a nice surface to sleep on. You know, it makes sense. Um, because have you seen Palakiko in the mornings here? Yes. I mean, he doesn't drink or anything, but no. he he would he sleeps through everything. Yes, absolutely. He just puts his head down and, you know. It, he sleepwalks through yeah. most of the mornings. So. Yeah. No. It's kind of embarrassing. Hey, you've heard of MRSA, right? I have. Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA virus, or uh, yeah, virus. Is that what they're calling it? MRSA infection. Mm-hmm. Um well, apparently, get in hospitals. We can't even. We can't solve it today. We like. We don't know how to get rid of it. Yeah, we do. We cut it out. Well, yeah, that's one way to get rid of it. But <laughs> you know, yuck. Um, so anyway, a professor from the UK found that in the 10th century, in a medical text called Bald's Leech Book, mm. they found a cure to MRSA. Leeches? No. Oh. Um, Baldness. She said, never in my wildest dreams, with a laugh, would she think it would come out of a 10th century medical text. Right. But it involves mixing garlic, Mm. onion, wine, and cow bile in a brass vessel and then letting the mixture sit for nine days to ferment. The resulting concoction brewed up by the researcher in modern glass container with a brass square placed in it to be to replicate the brass vessel proved 90% effective in killing MRSA in a laboratory. And apparently all other life. Yeah. That's gross. But you got to get your cow bile. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where you buy all this stuff, yeah. but I know it's not going to be one and, and stop it, At shopping. what point did someone go, I know, let's mix these hey, ingredients. let's try this. <laughs> They actually experimented in a mouse with a chronic wound, and it healed the mouse. Oh, wow. But, I mean, wouldn't you want to be healed just so they don't put any of that stuff on you? Like, 
Right. Keep that bile away from me. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get better on my own. Wow. Cool, huh? So when in doubt, go look it up. 10th century book. Uh, the, the book, I'm sure it's going to be selling off the shelf on Amazon, Bald's Leech Book. That's what they say. I mean, we keep mowing down chunks of the rainforest without knowing if any of those plants can actually help us with right. who knows what. And you, maybe you don't even need the plant. You just need the cow or yeah. that's been eating the plant to create the bile along with a little – by the way, garlic. I think mm. garlic and onion were more for the taste. <laughs> you don't eat it. <laughs> Well, you got to get it in you somehow. Well, I mean, you do have a wound. That's where the MRSA is. Mm. You just okay. kind of slather it on. I mean, like, if you want to like be technical, taste. sure. Always consult witch doctor Matt Townsend. <laughs> exactly. That's what this is. Your witch doctor on the side. Hey, uh, police said a man donned a Home Depot apron to steal air conditioners. Hmm. We're not trying to give you any ideas, but we, if you do work at Home Depot, you got to watch out for this. I'm going to guess Home Depot's taking steps and measures yeah. to. Uh, yeah. Police say a man donned an orange Home Depot apron, posed as an employee to steal air conditioners in New Hampshire, but the manager noticed the name on the garment didn't match that of any of the workers at the store. So police arrested 53-year-old Bernardo Kalana on Saturday. Kalana loaded two air conditioners into his pickup truck in Playsto and uh, went back inside. A manager, I guess he was going back for the third, or maybe like some air conditioning tiles or whatever. He needed he needed a basket, one of those float baskets. Was it baskets. air conditioner or was it a swamp cooler? I don't know. They didn't say. I mean, there's lots of parts. You need the pads. They got to be. It's probably an air conditioner because the swamp coolers are they're heavy, right? Not really. Uh, Kalana later told police he didn't know anything about the air conditioners, unless it may be like a window air conditioner. You see, yeah, those maybe little that's units. It. Yeah, maybe those, that's those what you it was. can just carry out. Yeah, but uh, they did find that he was wearing the apron. He had the apron actually wound up into his back pocket, so. You know, I mean, some people work for their air conditioning. Hmm. You know, some some just steal it. Steal it. He was at least pretending to work there. Yeah, that was neat. I mean, that's. I'm just carrying this out for a customer. There is mm-hmm. still a pretend work ethic, right? <laughs> so if you can't really work, then just pretend. Uh, Italy is apparently giving away a hundred historic buildings for free. I know Cole's been looking for a building. Nice castle or monastery. Yeah. Looking for anything for free. Italy is giving away the 100 historic buildings, including castles, houses, and towers. I, I think I'd go for a tower. Nice tower. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you don't see a lot of towers anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the bid to boost uh, slow tourism and tempt visitors away from overcrowded city centers, old houses, inns, farmhouses, monasteries, ancient castles, they're all up for grabs. And by the way, you don't have to pay a penny. In total, 103 sites are available, dotted across the country from north to south of Italy. The only catch is those who take up the offer will have to commit to restoring and transforming the sites into tourist facilities such as hotels, restaurants, or spas. There's a crazy episode of House Hunters International in there somewhere. Yeah, totally. You have uh, to yeah. install your own air conditioning is what they're saying. Right. Boy, you better get it a homemade Home Depot apron. They're cheap. Uh, entrepreneurs will... will uh, with a concrete proposal, can can come get it, and then all you have to do is sign basically a 50-year lease hmm. and promise you're going to fix it up. Turn it into something profitable. Or yeah, at least or, or touristy. Right. Hmm. I mean, that's great because then you could, like, bring your own flair to Italy. So like, you, you yeah. could set up, like, a uh, – like storming the castle kind mm-hmm. of thing with the tower where you just give everyone pitchforks <laughs> and swords and stuff and they have – Oh, you yeah. just kind of – yeah, and reenact night, about four in the morning. Yeah, a bunch of townsfolk come try to storm the castle. Yeah, that'd be kind of and fun. Burn you at the stake. 
Wow, that's a great activity. How was Italy? It was horrible. (laughs) It was so bad. Would you go to Italy and then like do like an Italian restaurant? I mean, they just just call it food. No, you got to try real Italian. Yeah. Just if I came to America, I'd eat a hamburger. Hmm. Yeah. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't expect great Italian. Would you go to Italy and serve American food? Would you open that restaurant? No. Would that be your pitch to the government to get your tower? Make yeah. it a an Olive Garden, like a White Castle. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would open up. A, I, what I would do? I'd go get. A, I'd go get. I'd go to Italy. I'd get a monastery in Italy, mm. and then I'd open up an Olive Garden in it. There you go. That's what I'm saying. Is that the, with all the salad and breadsticks you can eat? Right, which is purely Italian. That's so Italian. Americans, what are we doing? We are ruining the world. Yeah. Now our food is actually that like there's stories in uh, in China where entrepreneurs here are taking the American spin on Chinese food, taking it back there. Oh yeah. And the people that live in China are like, "What is this? That what is this?" And then they're grossed out because it's all salty and you know, too but, much. well, but you know what you could do that brings up a good idea. Go to Italy, get a tower. And then open up a a panda okay. restaurant, right? And serve Chinese food in a tower. <laughs> Who doesn't want Chinese food in a tower? Mm. It'd be great. It's good thinking. Again, I think a solid business proposal, and the government would give you your fifty year lease. You'd be set. Okay, Cole, are you going to do this, Cole? Is that this sounds like a good plan. Okay. I need something to do after I graduate, right? That's right. Well, yeah, you might want to get Can't Caitlin. Can't do radio forever. Yeah, have Caitlin. You guys can take all of these ideas. They're free. No. We're just throwing them out there. They're free. Not very good, but yeah, they're free. Go ahead. What do you mean they're not good? Improve upon them. They're great. And they're free. So um, in a minute, we're going to take a, we'll take a break. We'll come back. We're going to be getting into why are some people nice? Why are some jerks? How come we're nicer to, to, to people we don't even know? than the people we know. It's a replay of an interview we did with Adam Bear. You're not going to want to miss it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, some people are just jerks, aren't they? They cut you off on the road. They give you the wrong change. They spit in your food. It's easy to be a jerk because you might not ever see that person again. So why are other people so nice? If some are jerks, why are others nice? And why do some people treat uh, even complete strangers kindly, even when they uh, are not expecting anything in return? Adam Baer joins us. He's a Ph.D. student in Yale's psychology department, and uh, he is talking today about a recent study that he's conducted that uses a mathematical model to provide an answer to that question about why some are so nice to strangers and why some aren't. Adam Baer, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So are you, you're a Ph.D. candidate, huh, Adam? Yeah, a PhD student actually. Okay, uh, student, getting tomorrow. close. Yeah, talk yeah. about this research. In fact, this is a it's an interesting topic, right? Because we've all experienced a jerk. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this um, this research we've been working on 
um, is sort of inspired by a lot of sort of empirical stuff we've been doing. This paper itself isn't um, actually didn't actually conduct any studies, but it used uh, math. It used game theory to try to explore why um, some people will be selfish and some people will be cooperative. Hmm. Um, in particular, so it's it's trying to sort of marry um, two different topics uh, from psychology. The first is what I was just talking about, sort of cooperation. So why is it that um, some people are nice to others? That is, why are they sometimes willing to pay a cost to help others? So, you know, we recycle our goods, we give to charity, we do favors for our friends, like helping them move or driving to the airport. Um, and this is sort of a deep scientific mystery to some extent, because from this perspective of sort of evolution or just sort of social interaction in general, people could get away with being selfish in a lot of these situations um, and sort of do better for themselves. Um, the other topic that we wanted to sort of connect to this domain of cooperation is the, the distinction between what psychologists call intuition and deliberation. Um, so this sort of has um, a very intuitive you know, notion. Just sometimes we think fast, sometimes we think slow. Um, so we might think fast you know, when we're just deciding what clothes to wear in the morning, but other times we make more slow, deliberative decisions like what college to go to or who to marry. Um, and this applies also to the domain of cooperation. So we wanted to explore um, this question that actually sort of goes back to the time of Aristotle and Plato about what sort of motivates these virtuous acts, what motivates us to do nice things, even sometimes when no one is sort of watching us or there are no future consequences uh, for being a jerk, for being mean. Yeah, I love that. So, is it is it a virtuous thing? Is it a or is it just kind of? I guess you were calling it instinctive, uh, just something you do naturally, or is it something you've actually had to process through? And I'm going to be nice because it'll have these ramifications. Exactly. So Plato famously thought, you know, true virtue came from sort of calculated deliberation. You needed kind of yeah, careful thought in order to be virtuous, and it you sort of needed to rein in the emotions and instincts. Whereas Aristotle kind of thought the opposite, that really true virtue came from instincts and emotion. Mm. Um, and what our model tried to provide insight into is which of these two views uh, might be right when you think sort of from the perspective of game theory and also try to um, combine this with what we know empirically about um, sort of what happens when people stop and think as opposed to make decisions quickly um, about whether to help someone anonymously. Talk, um, and in short, yeah. oh, oh, no, I was just going to say, just, just for the listener, talk about game theory, because some people may not uh, know how that works. Um, but it's because it, it, I guess that's how you led it to a mathematical equation was through games theory. Right. So, yeah, it's, game theory is a little, um, yeah, it, it sounds very complicated, but in essence, it's just a way of sort of capturing interactions, social interactions that people have and sort of how well they do by acting in certain different ways um, when, you know, when their partner is also acting in certain different ways. So, for example, um, in this situation, you could imagine um, there are two sort of decisions that agents or atheists or these virtual agents in our model can make. They can be nice and cooperate, or they can be selfish and defect. So, so what, what cooperating means is I'm going to sort of take an initial personal cost to deliver some benefit to the other person. Um, where it's affecting means I'm not going to incur that cost and sort of keep all that to myself. Um, but then there's this interaction with this other person who's also deciding whether to cooperate or defect right. um, in some circumstances, right? So 
um, if I'm in a sort of interaction where there might be future consequences, so suppose, um, suppose my friend asks me to move and I have this dilemma about whether to sort of pay the initial costs of helping him move um, or decide to be selfish and tell him I can't move. Um, so that, that will impact sort of my, my payoff, we call it, um, in game theory, um, sort of in the, in the moment, but also it could influence my sort of payoff down the road. So if I ask uh, my friend to help me move in the future, my decision in the past might influence what he's going to do in the future. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, game theory is sort of exploring the dynamics of these payoffs from your decisions and from your partner's decisions to try to understand under what conditions it would be good to cooperate versus be selfish. That's great. Now, and that's a great explanation because it's complicated. And it's, um, what did you find out? It was who won, Aristotle or Plato? <laughs> so, yeah, the short answer is that Aristotle won, essentially. Hmm. So, so the idea in our model is that we suppose, again, bringing in this idea of intuition versus deliberation, intuition acts as a sort of inflexible heuristic. So people who use intuition can't really stop and think so much about whether they're in an interaction where there might be repeated consequences or not. They have to either sort of be intuitively jerks or intuitively nice people. Hmm. Um, whereas sometimes people can pay a cost to sort of stop and think, you know, it takes time and effort, but it might be worth the cost to pay to stop and think and realize what sort of situation you're in and whether it might be worth it for you to cooperate or defect in a given interaction. So really, um, jerkiness is an in, is an intuitive. It's kind of a nat. It's it's an intuitive state. You just do it kind of by instinct. Well, so well, so actually, what we found, so so we found essentially what we what we varied in our model is sort of how likely it is that you're going to have one of these sort of future interactions. So how much of our interactions are like sort of friendship type interactions where there are future consequences or reputation concerns or whatever versus anonymous sort of one shot interactions. Um, when, when there are very little, you know, repeated kind of reputation interactions, then, yeah, people develop just an intuition to be jerks. But actually, most of the time, what we find, and this is consistent with um, a lot of the empirical work, is that people are actually intuitively nice. They're intuitively cooperative, mm. like Aristotle sort of said. So virtue kind of comes from habit. And what deliberation does when people choose to deliberate is actually make them more selfish sometimes when they stop and realize they can get away with being selfish because there are no long-term consequences. Interesting. So our nature is maybe more intuitively nice. That tends to pay better dividends, except once you can start thinking about it and conniving, then then all of a sudden you see – that's one of the benefits of games theory is if you keep the game going fast, you know, people might choose nice. But once they start seeing how the game plays – they start becoming more conniving almost, more, I guess that's the deliberative process. Exactly. So, I mean, you could imagine in our model, it could have worked the opposite way, right? You could have found these, like, virtual agents who sometimes had an intuition to be mean, but then they could stop and realize, oh, actually, maybe it's worth it for me to be cooperative because I can strategically sort of, like, be nice to, to my friend and then they'll help me in the future and so on. Right. But actually, we find that that doesn't happen. Um, in our model. So that was one of the benefits of sort of modeling this mathematically. Um, it was really interesting to find that that kind of agent sort of can't evolve in our hmm. um, system. Oh, that's good. Let's do this, Adam. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Adam Baer, who is a PhD student at uh, in Yale's psychology department, and he's talking about a recent study basically about uh, jerks and, I guess, uh, kindness. 
and where it comes from. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion on the other side. Stick with us. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us uh, is Adam Baer. Adam is a Ph.D. student in Yale's psychology department, and he has been um, looking at uh, some research and, and uh, studying jerks and kindness. Is it an intuitive process? Are people just kind of intuitively acting, or are they deliberately uh, thinking it through to become the jerk? It's interesting research, and he's teaching us um, some interesting things that might, Adam, be uh, applicable, I guess, to the rest of our, our lives. One of the findings that we were talking about before the break is that uh, the, the initial response of kindness or, I guess, being a jerk would be more intuitive. But if we have more time to think about it, we might be more um, likely to become a jerk. That's right. Yeah. So we find this, yeah, this asymmetry sort of in our model where it seems like deliberation can only sort of make you meaner. Um, and in, in most cases, actually, people are, are at heart, they're intuitively nice people, and that, yeah, what deliberation does is undermine um, their kindness. So what should we do with that information? Just make everybody quickly do things? Like, <laughs> just don't think about it, just do it. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, yeah, I think, I mean, that's one sort of um, suggestion that might not be so practical. Um, right. I think one thing in our model that's important is that, you know, you can develop an intuition to be mean if, um, you know, there are very little long-term consequences for being mean. Um, but, but yeah, so the idea, I guess, is for thinking about how we want to structure institutions or, you know, our government or our workplace. Um, what's good, I guess, first of all, is incentivizing cooperation in a lot of situations. So, you know, in your workplace, you want to reward, um, you know, you want to reward people who, help their friends, help their colleagues, you know, when they call out sick or need a favor, um, and sort of punish maybe people who don't do that. And what our model suggests also is that that can cultivate this intuitive feeling of wanting to do good, even when those, like, sort of explicit incentives aren't there. Um, So the more we have those incentives, it doesn't just make us more likely to be nice um, when, you know, there's there's that external incentive to to help our friend to to get a promotion, um, but also... We're going to develop sort of a low-level intuition, emotion to be um, nice to people, even when you know no one is watching us. Hmm. So, so that's sort of an implication for thinking about how we want to structure our institution. Well, and I feel like you can see this uh, manifested in everyday life when you might instinctively think, "Oh, I really need to go take you know something to my neighbor who just lost their mother," and. The more you think about it, yeah, but I've got so much time. I've got to do this, and I'm busy here, and oh, man. Well, my mom was sick, and she never brought anything over. And it's almost like not acting on the initial goodness might not make you a jerk, but it might also not make you you know, aligned to your own values. Right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> calling it a jerk might be a little... Yeah. Know, no, but yeah, but it, yeah. some people, yeah, some people are a jerk. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah, some people are just jerks by nature, but <laughs> yeah. other people, 
and sort of our model is speaking more to the people who are actually very cooperative and nice by nature. But like you say, they kind of, when they stop and think, they can rationalize away why they don't want to be nice in this situation, why they can get away with being selfish. Mm. Um, do you, where do you see the research going in the future? Well, so right now, um, so, so I guess there are two sort of strains of the research. One is continuing to sort of find more um, kind of actual, like empirical findings that support the research. So it's already been shown that when people um, make these kind of anonymous one-shot decisions quickly, they're more likely to cooperate than when they do it slowly or under, um, or, or when they're under like cognitive load. So when, when they're sort of stressed out, you know, trying to remember something. Um, so their cognitive resources are kind of depleted. They become more cooperative, which fits with this um, theory very well. Um, so one thing is to explore that sort of literature more. Um, some work is being done, not by me, but by my lab, looking at other cultures where you could imagine, you know, there are different kind of incentive structures, like in India um, or in Asia. Um, so we want to see sort of how that affects the relationship between using intuition versus uh, deliberation. And then the other thing we're doing is we're sort of expanding this model uh, to be more realistic and try to and try to make sort of intuition um, better than just saying it's just this totally inflexible heuristic. So sometimes, you know, sometimes intuition is actually pretty good at distinguishing sort of situations. Um, you know, you might be able to use sort of stereotype information to infer that this is someone I'm not going to see again, or this is someone I'm likely to see a lot, so I should be nice to them. Um, but that stereotype information is also wrong a lot of the time. So it's interesting to consider when are people willing to sort of override those stereotypes um, and how does that influence um, whether you're nice or mean. Yeah. That's uh, – I mean it's it's pretty cool research. And it, you would think in a way – I mean how fun to be doing this in your PhD program. Um, I, I guess too we – so what would you suggest just to the average Joe? When I go home and tell my kids about this interview, um, what what should I take away as a teaching moment for my family? <laughs> it's a good question. I guess, yeah, I guess try to realize that um, virtue comes from the heart and try not to think too much about your moral decisions as much as you can. Um, That's great. That's great advice. <laughs> act on act on your your initial thought, um, and don't get too bogged down in overthinking everything else. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Adam Bear. Good luck and continue your program. Finish. Come on. We need another doctor in the world. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Adam Bear. Again, a PhD student in Yale Psychology Department. Uh, isn't that great? Good, good to know. Follow your intuition. Follow your heart. That the initial instinct is is probably more of a kind of a, a co- cooperative, virtuous thing um, than than your second or third or fourth thought might be. Also, another uh, benefit that I, I kind of derive from the whole research by Adam is simply the idea that people instinctively are good, it sounds like. You know, we, we tend to more intuitively lean to be cooperative and helpful. And that seems like Good. That's the good news. Remember, we're always trying to bring you the good news. So even though you might think everyone's out to get you and they're all jerks, um, that might be your second, third, and fourth thoughts, your deliberation instead of your instinctive intuition. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit two really great guys from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be coming up on their show later uh, at the top of this hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it is that time, which means, you know, we got to get ready for BYU Sports Nation. It's about 15 minutes away, so let's go down to uh, two wild and crazy guys. Jerem Jordan, Brian Logan, who will be hosting the show today. Hello, gentlemen. With it. <laughs> How are you, gentlemen? Greatest commercial of all time. Good. Is that, it is the greatest of all time. Hey, uh... <laughs> Hey, I've got a um, I, I got a question. I've just been dying to ask you to. Uh, of course, yes, I have a show and we talk a lot about relationships. But I don't know if you saw that Melania Trump um, slapped Donald Trump's hand away yesterday, or a couple of days ago when he was reaching to hold her hand. Mm. And I and I wanted to know why what you two thought about that. Fighting. Why why do you think Melania was? They were walking on the. They were walking from the airplane. Uh, with with Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, she was kind of a little bit behind him. He reached his hand back. She slapped his hand away. I want to know why. I mean, we're both married, so yeah. I mean, a number. I mean, you you, you you've had your hand slapped many a time, right, Brian? Yeah, in my face too. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> good. Good. So, uh, what's the cause of this? They're not giving us much information, so we almost need to make it up. Yeah. Maybe he forgot their anniversary, mm. decided to go to work yeah. know, that day. Maybe he forgot to take out the trash, uh-huh. do the dishes. I mean, I'm just giving you all the reasons that I've... Yeah, that you've had your hands slapped, right. You know, yeah, yeah. That, those are good. You forgot the anniversary, taking the trash out. Uh, I know Jerem's had his hand slapped, too. Um, do you want to talk about that, Jerem? My wrist slapped. Just a lot at it, work. You it, know, just <laughs> things I say. Just do not hey, say hey. that. And enough, enough with Utah football. Just, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. ooh. You say stuff about Utah football, and then you get your hand slapped, your wrist slapped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As has the BYU football team the last yeah six years. Yeah, See, it's been... comments like that to get my wrist yeah. slapped. See, there you go. See, wow. But but this year BYU's going to play Utah, and facts, it's in Provo. You can get in trouble for stating facts. Oh, you can get in trouble for stating <laughs> facts. You're married. You you know you can get in trouble for stating facts. Come on. <laughs> Those are the worst ones. Oh, hey, um, the worst ones. <laughs> you are right. What now? It's it's got to be something's going on because Brian's here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So Spencer's uh, he's working on his pickup truck today. Oh, uh, he's still he's still in the pokey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't one. know where I don't know where he is or what he's doing. In fact, I think it's better that way. Yeah, yeah. It's better to not know. A, a few people came up to me and they said, "Oh, so Spencer's doing this and doing this." I'm like. I don't know. He's on vacation. I, I'm not going to... Cool for him. I don't want to know. No. Yeah, it's depressing. I'll know on social media. Because it's more he'll, fun. If it's cool, he'll put something on Instagram. That's true. But what is exciting is Brian's wearing plaid today, if yes. I recall. Yes, he is. And yeah. so if if you don't get enough by just hearing Brian's voice, you could make sure you go watch it on, uh, on BYU TV, and then you could see the plaid in action. I have a, a plaid shirt as well, so it's kind of a shirt off today. <gasps> really? Yeah. It is, yeah. I didn't know. Brian so, wears it better. Like his is slim fit and looks amazing. Is there is there kind of a lumberjack theme? Is a, there a little bit? I got a couple buttons undone. You know, oh, so you can see your bling. <laughs> yeah, we did some focus groups, and that was the message we got back. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. loosen More up Brian your Logan collar with his uh, <laughs> some buttons undone. Oh wow! <laughs> I made sure I did uh, chest uh, yesterday at the gym. Yeah, oh, did you good? Yeah, I did too. 
Yeah. I did too. Chest and, sho- chest and shoulders. That's what I no call legs, my refrigerator. No the chest. I open <laughs> chest. it up and there are lots of treasures. The magic there. food chest. <laughs> it's so good for you. Oh, so, chest. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Is that what we're talking about? So um, talk to me about your show. You guys are still doing the show, right? Yeah. Today's uh, today's going to be a lot of sports, specifically BYU. Okay. Uh, to the nation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about the 2017 BYU football schedule. Who is, me up, man. Who's the best team on the schedule? Okay, not the toughest game. Who's the best team? Who's the best team? We'll discuss that. David Nixon will join us as well. There's some good teams on that schedule. We'll break it down. Man. What else are we doing, Brian? Um, yeah, we have Bronson, not Kafusion. Bronson Larson? Yep. Bronson Larson. Um, talk to him about how he got his, his nickname. Which is amazing. The Bronx Bomber. Yeah. He's on the baseball team. He hit 12 homers this year. Oh. Yeah. Bad Cats uh, in the WCC tournament tomorrow. Mm-hmm. In Stockton. You can listen to it on BYU Radio 10 East. Bad Cats. Hopefully they stay safe out there in Stockton. They'll be yeah. fine. Yeah, lock your doors. Just, yeah. yeah, just go straight to the hotel, yeah, then straight to the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus, Eric Mika on his uh, workout tour, Hootie workout for yesterday. Is, we'll tell you. Is, it, is, is he going to stick? Is it going to stick? Is is he going to be playing pro ball? Yeah, yeah. He, he already, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's he gone. He has no choice. He gone. Yeah. He gone. He's going <laughs> to play somewhere. He might be speak, He might be eating gelato, but he's yeah. going to play somewhere. Yeah. Hey, by the way, is Jimmer is he done in China? We don't know. He he hasn't renewed his contract. Oh man, so, he was huge. I'm interested to see if he's going to be like Mister China, guy, yeah, and carve out that legacy, or if he's going to bounce around and. Europe or still try with the NBA dream? Like, is he going to play in the summer league? I mean, I would like to see him in the summer league just to see. If if he's not in the summer league, NBA dream is over. Yeah. It's over. Yeah. Give um, it up. I mean, he could still sign a 10-day contract or something midseason, but if he didn't do it last year, he ain't getting any younger. I just don't see how that would happen. Yeah, I don't either. Wow. So, But it's sports, so who knows? <sighs> Yeah, I think I'd go to China, but he's also a dad, right? So he's a new dad. Yeah, yeah, that's, that plays a yeah. That changes little, stuff. Little girl named Wesley. Yeah, I mean that changes everything. I think I'd probably literally still be playing right now. But you'd be yeah, and for sure. I'd be playing. I mean, in China, or, I'm, okay, American scratch that, Gladiator. Scratch that, something. Scratch that. Scratch that. <laughs> I would still be trying to play. What would your nickname <laughs> be if you were on American Gladiator, Brian? Probably like Mighty Mouse or something. Plaid Boy. Nitro. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing name. <laughs> I love that show. I, Mini Nitro, Mini I, by Nitro. the way, did you like not she, want a Nitro? tennis ball gun that could shoot tennis balls at people? What an amazing time to be alive in the 90s. Those were the days. Yeah, big hair, days. big Nitro. Yeah. Big, big muscled big everything, women. Right? Yes. Big everything. You, now everything is like slim fit. Like yeah. Shirt. You would be, yeah, you'd be slim fit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hey, hey, that's a good one. And here comes slim hey, fit. Hey. Yes. The oh substitute school teacher from <laughs> from Iowa is taking on Slim Fit in Tetherball. I would dominate. In how, how tall is how tall would Slim Fit be on American Gladiators? How tall uh, would you be there? I mean, I know here you were five nine. Yeah, I mean, I'd be five five and a half. But I'm, I mean, I'm taller in person. You just, you know. Well, you know, I think when you're you meet, a, when you meet me I'm when when you tall. when I met you the first time, I'm like, is this guy like six five or what? <laughs> I really did. You, I think it's because your shirt your shirt was unbuttoned. From the small ladder, and you're like, oh yes. Uh, when Tom Homo first saw me, he was like, who are who are you? He's looking me up and down. <laughs> like you're not on scholarship, are you? Well, I mean, first first foremost, I'm black, so it's like, okay, you're an athlete. <laughs> Second of all, like you're short, so you don't play basketball. 
but you're buff, but you're short. You got so a smile that never football. stops. He knew he was a corner. He can eye a, co- a good corner. Oh yeah. because no, I mean, you would first think I would be a running back, right? But Harvey was there at the time, so it's like we got like Harvey. Yeah, he's kind of like, kind of different from you yeah. physically. Yeah. So. But yeah, you know what? There is. You're still a specimen. I'm telling you. We yeah. We need Brian on BYU Sports Nation. Seriously, we got to pick up the have you muscle. Seen Spencer and I. It's great to have Jason and Brian on the show. <laughs> yeah, but you can't. I mean, everyone. We all can't have everything. So we have Brian that has most of it. Hmm. It's just how it works. I mean, you just okay. you just you're, you're judging in a positive way. I appreciate it. You bet. You just never know what goes on behind closed doors. All I got to say is just keep praying for me. I, I'm here for you. Thank I'm you. here for you. <laughs> okay, guys, go have a great show. Knock them dead. Uh, BYU Sports Nation. It's just six minutes away. You're not going to want to miss it. They're wearing plaid for heaven's sakes. And you know, you know what they say about two guys in plaid talking sports. It's going to be a party. That's, I think that's the phrase. Uh, pretty sure that's the phrase. Listen to this crazy story. And again, if, you, if you're sensitive to, uh, you know, infestation of maggots, this lady was bit by a bug while in the rainforest. Her left leg was then infected. And I guess apparently it, this fly had left larvae and eventually a bunch of maggots crawled out of her leg while she was – I don't want to gross you out. Too late. But, but a little bite, eggs infested, turns into maggots coming out of this lady's leg. I mean tell me that's not the ultimate nightmare. Yes. I mean, there are, the there are horror movies that base that as their central premise. I think if I've learned something today on the Matt Townsend show, it's don't go outside. Don't go outside. There We've are had a ticks, lot of ticks. There's, uh-huh, there's flies, ticks. There's... This is the human bot fly. You got to oh. watch out for it. It's a little peanut sized insect. If you're going to Brazil or to the Amazon, wear pants. Yes. Long pants. Also, wear pants most of the time. You know what? Always. That's the rule. Yeah. Always, always. Wear pants. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm here to help you. I just want I want to I want to help you. Police in Oklahoma City said a woman used a hammer to rob a burger restaurant Sunday. About ten o'clock this morning, the female wearing a Batman T-shirt came into the store. A spokesperson said the 26-year-old Clara Aguirre um, pulled out a hammer, but it didn't seem to frighten anybody. So she's doing a little armed robbery with a hammer. So she kicked it up a notch. She ended up smashing the screen, the credit card holder, and then tried to run away with the cash register before she was uh, able to break it open. Police said an an employee tried to block her with a trash can. Afterwards, uh, Gary spotted somebody watching her through the drive-thru window. She lunged at the drive-thru window to yell at the customers and ended up breaking the window of the drive-thru with her hammer. Anyway, she uh, she did leave with a handful of cash. And a pit bull, by the way, that was waiting for her outside. <laughs> she brought her dog and had her dog waiting outside. The duo then ran off and scaled a few fences. I guess she picked up her dog to help scale the fence. Toss him over. But they did find her. So, you know, lesson learned. Uh, maybe leave dog at home. Mm-hmm. Just, you know. Second one of those today. Humane also. to animals, right? Mm-hmm. And um, also don't use a hammer. Right. For an armed robbery. Apparently... It's not intense enough. It, does that count as an armed robbery if it's only a hammer? Doesn't armed yeah. have to be something a little more artillery based? Yeah, you would think it would be armed. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess a stick is. You could. I mean, it's maybe it's just 
maybe it's not armed. I mean, it's hammered. Right. It's it's a hammered robbery. She had the tools she, yeah. to do the job. She was pretty close. She was oh, 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 so close. And as we wrap up the show, we always like to end with a hero story. And today our hero is a woman that's hailed as the Angel of Manchester for saving teens from a deadly blast. As chaos erupted in and around the Manchester arena, a woman now held as the Angel of Manchester sprang into action, corralling dozens of terrified teens to safety. Bystander Paula Robinson, 48, of West Dalton, was with her husband at the train station when the suicide bomb exploded Monday night in the foyer of the arena where Ariana Grande um, had just finished a sold-out show. Robinson saw the young screaming fans fleeing the area and stayed by their side. We ran out, said Robinson, according to the Daily Mail. It was literally seconds after the explosion. I got the teens to run with me. Robinson then took about 50 girls to a nearby Holiday Inn Express hotel, posted her phone number on social media so that the panicked parents could contact her to be reunited with their children. We have about 50 kids with us waiting to be picked up. They are safe. We will look after them, Robinson posted, according to screenshots. Another post uh, read that, uh, please repost for any parents with children at MEN, and uh, we have taken as many kids as we can to the Holiday Inn to keep them safe and stay with them. Anyway, parents were frantic, running about trying to get their children, and the Good Samaritan was now held online for her heroic efforts. How cool is that? By the way, Paula Robinson, a hero in the moment, right? Just stepped up, saw the need, and really felt the need as a parent to take care of these kids. That's all it takes, folks, to be a hero. You don't have to want it. You don't even have to like it. You just do it. And when you do it at the right time, in the right place, and take care of other human beings, that's what really brings out the hero in all of us. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to help you see the good in the world. It's out there, and you're part of it. We can't do the show without you, so join us again, 9 to noon Eastern time, right here uh, on BYU Radio. Until then, let's take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.